The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. What's happening? Good to see you. Good to see you, my friend. Your show is fantastic. It's really good, man. Thank uh, you. Painkiller on Netflix. Can't recommend it enough. Um, I'm only two episodes deep. Uh, I started the third today. It's so fucking good, dude. And it's so just it's so disturbing because it's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an accurate account of how this all happened. It's just it makes you so uncomfortable to think that there's people in the world that would do what the Sackler family did. Do you know anyone who's who's yes. gone down from from opioids? Quite a few. Yeah, same quite here. a few people. Um, <clears throat> when uh, when they first came to me uh, and asked me if I was interested, my buddy Eric Newman, who who put the whole thing together, uh, you know, said, "You want to do something about the Sacklers? Do you know who the Sacklers are?" And I did. I knew they were the you know family behind OxyContin. Uh, and he said, "Are you interested?" And I, I started thinking. And I started counting the people I know who've died or whose kids have died uh, because of Oxycontin and opioids. And I, I quickly got off of both fingers, you know. And then I, I started thinking about um, some of my heroes, my art, my artistic heroes, um, Chris Cornell, Tom Petty. And, like, one of my big heroes was Prince. I was a yeah. huge, huge Prince fan. I, I went to school in Minneapolis when he was coming up. Uh, I was an extra in Purple Rain. Back in the day, you know, wow. First Avenue in, in Minneapolis, and you know those three guys. When, when Prince died, you know, yeah. Prince was he was su- had such a uh, he was legendary for his work ethic and his lifestyle with no alcohol and no swearing and just incredible work ethic. Yeah. And the fact that OxyContin got him. Yeah. And that that really kind of fucked with me. So when they came to me and you know started talking to me about doing something about the Sacklers, I was like, yeah, I'm all in. Um, and the more I dug into it, and the more experts and writers who have been covering this uh, epidemic for so long, the more I learned. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily the biggest conspiracy guy of all time. I, I do, uh, I'll, if the proof's there, uh, I'm, I'm down. But the more I learned about the Sacklers and how they maneuvered what is essentially just heroin in like a little M&M pill, you know, how they were so artful and so good at manipulating the system. Uh, I was shocked and I I was all in on painkiller. Well, I'm glad you were all in because people need to know this story and a lot of people aren't going to watch a documentary and, you know, they're not going to read about it. This is a very entertaining show that shows accurately how this went down and you know, there's a, there's a moment, and I don't want to give too much away, but there's this one moment where this ethical doctor confronts the sales girl. And that's a very, very, very powerful moment. Yeah. Because that the ethical doctor who knows everything about opiates is essentially explaining to this very young girl, just a beautiful sales girl, yeah. that you're selling heroin. You, it, this is heroin. It's indistinguishable to the body. It's, her, it's heroin. It's just you're calling it a different thing. And this idea that it's only 1% of the people have problems with it is those numbers are all lies. They're they're always lies. They lie about how many people died. They lie about how many people get addicted. It's all a lie. And if they can keep lying and not face any repercussions, they'll keep lying because that's they almost have 
an obligation to their shareholders to to do that. Yeah, and in this case, they didn't even have shareholders. It was, yeah. it was a private it's company. Crazy. Uh, the uh, Richard Sackler and his his uncles were making all the money. They completely lied. I mean, they were doctors, and they yeah. knew how powerful the the opioid dosage was. They and they knew there were. And, and what else is crazy is they knew that if they just kept, they they would make so much more money by what they call titrating up. Right. So, you know, we put you on 10 milligrams of Oxycontin because you're you blew out your back in the gym and it works for a bit. And then when it doesn't, we're like, oh, well, we just got to we got to we got to kick you up. Yeah. So let's put you on 20 and then let's put you on 40. And they got up to 85 milligram Oxycontins. They call them Oxycoffins. That was in the word on the street. And these these reps, these cute little reps, these pretty little college gra- you know, graduates who were just looking to make some money were paid based uh, bonuses based on the amount of milligrams in the pill. So the, I'm, I'm trying to convince you, if, if I'm a rep and, and you're a doctor, just to kick it up, doc, prescribe 20 or 40 or 85 milligrams and everybody will make some more money. And that was the game that the Sacklers were playing and like, you know, I've said like, I'm I'm down with capitalism, no problem. Like, make money, do it. And if if you just look at the Sacklers, you know, from a capitalistic perspective, and you apply, you know, uh, rules of capitalism, and you're on their grade, they get an A plus. They were fucking good at making money. You put like that much morality into the equation, and these are some evil human beings. It's unquestionably evil. And what's even more evil is they got away with it. They paid off. They had to give away a, a certain amount of money. I think it's $6 billion. See if we could find the settlement. So a little bit around six. And bec- now they can't be prosecuted. So they essentially bought their way out of going to jail for directly being responsible for the deaths of how many people? Right. Hundreds of thousands? So it, in a, the most bizarre coincidence I've ever experienced in, in the, my years of being in the business, the day Painkiller came out, the Supreme Court paused that decision. Have you heard this? No. It's a, it's a fascinating story. You should read about this. The day we came out was about 12 days ago now. The Supreme Court said, hold up. You, you, you cannot cut a deal. Wow. Supreme Court blocks Purdue Pharma's $6 billion Sackler opioid settlement. The justices will examine if bankruptcy court can force claimants to sign away their legal rights in a settlement. So let me break it down quick because this is actually fascinating for anyone who's paying attention. The deal that they cut, Purdue cut, was $6 billion. We're going to pay $6 billion to all the victims of OxyContin, but we're going to do that over the next two decades. We're going to parcel it out. And the Sacklers have maybe 15 bill in the bank, give or take. So they, they're just counting on interest rates to pay that six billion. And the deal they had cut said, we'll pay you the six, but you can never, there's no more. And you can never come after any more of our money and you can never come after us for any criminal charges. So they were basically buying their way to safety for six bill. And they, that deal was taken. The Supreme Court just said, hold up not so fast. We're not going to accept that deal. You may have to pay more and we may go after you. So now the potential for them to face true bankruptcy and maybe more 
is on the table. How accurate do we know, like, some of the... I know you, this is a docudrama, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what, how you would describe it? Sure. Or based on a real-life real life events. Yes. But some of the things that he... That Sackler said in both the, the older Sackler and the younger Sackler, Richard and... What was his dad's name? Um, Arthur. Arthur. His uncle. Yeah, well, his uncle, sorry. Both of those... The, the statements, they're, they're so horrific... Do we know they definitely said that? Right. Well, so, there, yes, there's so many horrific things they said. One of the things we know that they did said, which was, like, like there, one of the original strategies that Purdue Pharma had that they were advised to, to adopt by, you know, their lawyers and their advisors and their marketing guys, when they realized that people were dying, that kids were crushing up Oxycontin and snorting it and getting addicted and overdosing, when they realized it was being misused this way, their strategy was, quote, hammer the abusers, hammer the abusers. So you're Joe, your 19-year-old daughter's just dropped out of an Oxycontin overdose. The response of Purdue basically is, well, your daughter was a drug addict. Oh, God. Your daughter was a drug addict. I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss, but your daughter was a drug addict. Don't blame us. Hammer the abusers. And that was literally said out loud or written down? Like That was they... the strategy and to blame abuse on, addic- on addicts and to say anyone who has a problem with Oxycontin, it's not our fault. They're just drug addicts. It's not our fault. You know, we gave, yeah, we gave them heroin, but they're at, but they're, they're hammer on the abusers. Mass Attorney General alleges Purdue Pharma tried to shift blame for opioid addiction. Yeah. So think about that. Think about you being the parent. And if you you know see the show, we open each episode with a a parent. You know, we we were told right right when I got ready to lock the show, I got I was told I had to get on a Zoom with all the legal. You know, from. Netflix and others because the Sacklers are really good at lawyers. You know, Giuliani was was one of their main attorneys. Mary Jo White, I don't know if you know who she is. Yeah. Um, she's a, a very powerful attorney and others. Uh, so they, there, you know, there's a lot of fear about being sued. You know, and I, I, I have my talking points here about <laughs> what I'm not supposed to say. Uh, so again okay. everything i'm saying is stuff has been proven you know more or less my theory and things that have been backed up by books like painkiller by the very talented barry meyer who wrote investigative reporter for the times who wrote it but we were told by legal that we had to put disclaimers in front of each episode you know what you're about to see is based on fact but some of the facts have been changed and you know so, so it's not all true we've changed some of the facts um, and that didn't really sit right with me because, yes, we have interpreted things and changed some things. But the reality is the Sacklers did what they did. And I didn't I thought like just putting a standard disclaimer would be kind of letting them off a bit. Um, and I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, what if we had a, a 50 year old woman sitting? We opened the show, 50 year old woman staring at the camera and she reads the disclaimer exactly as legal says. You know, what you see um, is based on fact, but some of it has been fictionalized. And then she stops and she says, but what what hasn't been fictionalized is that my 22-year-old son, Tommy, and she holds up a picture, died of an Oxycontin overdose. And um, that was, you know, the kind of thing that was, I think, 
very important to me and to all the makers of the show that as if we were going to veer from the truth and we were going to potentially occur the wrath of the Purdue legal, we did it in a way that never let them off the hook. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Um, it's it's so weird how many people are on it. Um, I had a conversation with a friend of mine about his mom. His mom's 90. And, um, you know, she's had health issues. Um, but could you imagine when we were kids if uh, you told me that uh, your friend's mom was on heroin? And that we had to get her more heroin and the doctor's not there's there's something wrong with her prescription So what had happened was um, the pharmacists the doctor had screwed up and prescribed more pills uh, Verbally then he wrote it down on paper mm -hmm. like he told her you have to take two a day You know and this is supposed to be good for you know, whatever it is 30 60 days, but he wrote the wrong number he instead of like 180 he wrote 90 or something. I don't, I don't remember what he the over mistake prescribed was. By he under prescribed oh, by under prescribed. Oh, okay, okay. And so they were thinking someone was stealing her pills. Oh. So there was this like she doesn't have enough. Like it gets to the end of the month and she's out of pills and they're calling the doctor and the doctor's like what what's going on? They're like I don't know what's happening. Is someone stealing her pills? So there's this fear in the house that someone's stealing the pills. Yeah. So they figured out that's not what the case was. The case was there was just a mistake. The doctor inadvertently prescribed more in terms of take three a day every day or two a day every day, yeah. but he just didn't give her enough pills to do that. Uh, but it's, but you're, imagine your 90-year-old mom is jonesing because that's what's going on. Yes. I mean, imagine you're like, I got to get grandma heroin. Yeah. Hey, bro, you want to come with me? Do you have your gun? We're yeah. going to go get grandma heroin. Yeah. Like, are you fucking crazy? Imagine that thought. No one would think that that when we were kids, no one would think that was normal. My, I got to get my grandma heroin. She's uncomfortable. Well, yeah, and and you know one of one of the things that if I think in like episode three or four, the the patriarch of the Sackler family, Arthur Sackler, who started got the whole ball rolling, and he. You know, back in the day, they actually did prescribe heroin. We found all these great old ads for heroin in cough syrup, <laughs> cocaine for, you know, um, a, a fever. Um, and Well, codeine used to be in cough syrup, right? Yeah. Used to be able to get, when I was a kid. Well, you still can get it. Yeah. But there were literally ads that said heroin for a cough. <sighs> and, like, the whole history of how medicine started being marketed and heroin look at that <laughs> right? bare pharmaceutical products right? like like the people who brought you aspirin and are, and if you look up some of the old um see if you can find the uh, look, at it, look how they describe it the cheapest specific for the relief of coughs right so this was real this wow. was real shit and this is what you know doctors like arthur sackler who's was Richard Sackler's uncle and is, you know, arguably the the godfather of oxycotton and opioids. They, they were they were sending this stuff out. They your your child's having trouble sleeping, put a little liquid morphine on a blanket and let him suck on it. Jeez. This was happening like our grandparents were around for this. Oh my god, cocaine tooth drops, you see that? Look at that. That's insane. But that's real. Oh my God! Instantaneous cure. You don't give a fuck about your teeth. No, you you're feel trying good. to start a business. <laughs> well, or you're 12 and you're just being annoying because yeah. your tooth hurts, so your parents just 
give you a bunch of blow. Yeah, so crazy. Stay fit and slim by taking amphetamine. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Right? It's so crazy how how naive people were back then. Well, and but still today, right? Yes, and like still so today. so the catchphrase for Oxycontin that that Richard Sackler came up with was Oxycontin, the one to start with, the one to stay with. And that those were the ads. And that's what the cute little 23-year-old graduates from Ohio State or Duke or wherever they were from, these cute girls would come into your office. You're a, you're a doctor in, you know, some Midwestern town. And yeah. in comes this beautiful girl with a with a brochure that says Oxycontin, the one to start with, the one to stay with. And you've never heard of it. So you just start, you know. And it, it, here's the thing about Oxycontin. Have you ever taken an Oxycontin? No. I took it once, recreationally. Did so you was, do it before you started doing this? Yes. I did about, I don't know, eight years ago. A friend of mine had one, and she's like, you got to try this. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm like, okay. <laughs> try anything once, right? right? Try it. Took it. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh, my God. It was like, it was like being dropped in a, a vat of warm honey. That's how I best describe wow. it. And I'm like... Holy shit, get this away from me. Mm. Right? Like it's it works. Yeah. Heroin works. Yeah. Remember we've talked to people who've done heroin and they describe the feeling, the actual moment of the high. Okay. Yes. It it's a it's a powerful experience. If you've got horrific pain and you take an oxycontin or a fentanyl, it's probably gonna make that pain go away and you're gonna feel really good for a little while. Right for a little while, and then you're you're not going to feel so good, you know. I uh, and then you're going to want it again, and you're going to want it again and again, and then your body becomes addicted to it, and then it's not fun. And and I, you know, took it and recognized, okay, yeah, there's there's a lot of power in this little pill. No, thank you. Mm. And and I'm fortunate; I don't have an addictive gene, but I could easily see. How and, and look, the Sacklers knew this. They know they all knew how powerful that that product was, and they knew that if I put it in you, you're going to feel. As they say, as Richard Sackler says, uh, life is about running away from pain towards pleasure. If you feel pain, that's right. The human condition is we want to stay away from pain. Yeah, anything to to yeah. feel no pain and to feel good. Yeah, and so he knew he had this miracle because. Any pain, whether it's physical, emotional, you know, psychic pain that you're feeling, this little pill is going to turn that off. And you're going to feel like you've been dropped into a vat of warm honey for a, for a little while. And then that honey starts to turn into battery acid and it starts to, like, burn. I think it's funny that people make fun of people who believe in demons. Because what would a demon do uh, if, if you if, if you were a demonic entity and you wanted to steal lives and souls? Would you just go around just pulling people out of their house with a pitchfork and being like obvious about it? Or would you do it through a really evil sociopathic person mm -hmm. who decides that they're just going to manipulate this system and ruin countless lives. I mean, how many people have been affected by this? I don't know what the numbers are. Do you? Millions. I mean... How many people have died from it? Uh, half a, from, from opioids, 
six hundred thousand. Uh, but but that doesn't. It's like war numbers. Of course, it it, it is a war. It is an, the you can look at opioids as an absolute war. Much much higher body count than Ukraine, Afghanistan, and Iraq. You know, added up. Although I don't I don't know what the full Ukraine body count numbers when, are. When we were kids. It was very rare that someone died of a heroin overdose, and there was always a lost soul. It was always like some wild musician or some crazy poet. Someone is like, God, he died of heroin? Like, that's so crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like heroin was reserved for the people that were just not coming back. You know, every now and then someone would do cocaine or something like that, and if, you you know, you had a wild friend, he did, knew how to get mushrooms. But heroin? Nobody was like, yeah, let's go try heroin. Like, but now, when you look at those numbers from the introduction of OxyContin into now, how many people have died from that compound? It's fucking insane. Yeah, it is. It is really dark. And and then you know something else we talk about in the show uh, is yes, the the deaths are very high, but the amount of families that have been wrecked and destroyed, and yeah. children who've lost parents and had to grow up with that kind of trauma, um, you know. I, I have friends whose children have gotten hooked and uh, tangled up in, in opioids. Yeah. And, you know, as a father, um, one, of, one of my biggest, biggest fears was, God forbid, my child should ever experience addiction because I've seen what that does to a parent. Yeah. To have to ride that, that chaotic roller coaster of childhood drug addiction and try everything you can to keep your kids safe and find that this pill has taken a hold of their soul like you say like a demon um and you know sometimes death is almost preferred yeah that's what's so fucked up that's what's so fucked up that that you know death brings peace yeah and that there's is, that's so terrible to even think it, it's it's true though that the um the the chaos of dealing with someone and it's not just look it's not just oxycontin any addiction right you know i have many friends who've struggled with alcoholism and you know other addictions just trying to love somebody yeah who's going through that um kind of beast ride is is just horrific and to think that people like the sacklers were in the business of monetizing such hurt and pain that's that's dark it's very very dark and kind of ironically because of the war on drugs because so many drugs are illegal now people are dying from fentanyl from things that are not supposed to have opioids in them yeah which is even more insane because now people have this i don't want to say a taste for it but it's 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 so common like if like opioids are so common in this country recreationally now because of oxycontin and then you've got like people try to buy like street xanax and yeah. it has fentanyl in it yeah or street cocaine has fentanyl. we we lost a bunch of comics in la recently oh i heard that yeah in venice right yeah i don't know where it was yeah, i was in was venice in i didn't know they were like having a little house party and doing some coke recreationally yep. and there was fentanyl in it and they all died that's fucking one person survived but it, the whole thing is fucking insane Right. It's so insane that it's it's so so common. It's so common to hear about someone overdosing from fentanyl. Yeah. You you read about it in the news. It's in the news all the time. Athletes, singers, 
You know, someone fucks up and takes the wrong dose and they're dead. And I, I believe what happened with Tom Petty was he got off stage and I think he had some sort of an injury and he got a pill from one of the guys who was like a sound guy. And it had fentanyl in it. And it had fentanyl yeah. in it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, people are so desperate. They'll, t- they'll take some stuff that's not even from the pharmacy. They just need it. And that a family was able to make so much money. How much money did they make in total? I mean, you, you, if, you, if you Google their value, it's between 10 and 20 billion reported. Nobody knows exactly how much. They're a really secretive family. One of the most internet scrubbed families, and Richard Sackler in particular, people I've ever encountered. You just can get very little information on them. Wow. But, um, you know, and, and, and the other... I think big part of the story that that surprised me was the FDA, right? And the FDA's yeah. role in in opioid approvals, and in the case of OxyContin, uh, you know, we think about like the FDA as this big giant bureaucratic organization, and you know, you think we were talking about stem cells a little bit earlier yeah. that if you want uh, to get an approval for a drug, you know, and well, okay, you got to send it to the FDA and it's going to be reviewed by this massive board of scientists and, you know, experts and they're going to make a determination after careful analysis, right? That's not how it works. And in the case of OxyContin, the whole approval process came down to this one guy, this guy named Curtis Wright. And uh, Curtis Wright, when the and um, Purdue Pharma needed the FDA to approve. They'd spent 30 million bucks developing this drug. It's, the whole business of drug developing is fascinating. But they were all in, and they needed this drug and to keep the company alive. They needed the FDA to approve it. And this guy was like, I can't approve this. This is heroin in a pill. No. Well, and they kept trying to get him to approve it, and they kept trying to get – and they started trying to, like, pump his ego up. They started writing articles with him. They started trying to, you know, schmooze him and charm him. He wouldn't approve it. Finally, and no one knows the facts, they took him to a hotel on the East Coast. Purdue Pharma took Curtis Wright of the FDA, spent a couple of days in this hotel room. They came out of the hotel room with an approval, with the language, OxyContin, quote, is believed to be non-addictive is believed. If you think about that language, it had never been used in an approval process before, ever. Made no sense. Is believed. Not is not, but is believed to not be addictive. A year later, he leaves the FDA, where he's making probably 50 grand a year. Where does he go work? Purdue Pharma. For 400 plus thousand dollars a year. Ugh. They bought the approval. But the two days in the hotel, what the fuck did they do? Nobody and knows. And who agrees to stay in a hotel for two days with so those people? I, I wrote a scene in, in Painkiller. We, we were putting it together uh, where we imagined what happened in that hotel. Right. And I had, like, everything from monkeys <laughs> to, like, <laughs> like kickboxing, Thai kickboxing, massage parlors. Ugh. To like everything we and like I wanted to film the most debaucherous two day, like anything your mind could think of, like the craziest yeah. of the right water sports, all of it, all of it, <laughs> lot like like jet water sports, like with the what the, with the with they spray your house down with sandblasting, yeah. like just the crazy and and we wrote it like this just Faustian orgy of 
absolute decadence. And the lawyers called, and they're like, are you fucking kidding me? We can't do this. So we just shut the door. Oh, wow. And we just, I think it's episode three that that's it. But he took a job. I mean, like, like I was saying earlier, I'm not big on... You know, conspiracies, maybe, maybe not. I heard you were talking about, you know, Kennedy being potentially killed by the CIA. I, I don't know. I, I don't, don't know who killed him, but yeah. I do think that it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald. What well, couldn't I, have been? I think I think Lee Harvey Oswald was involved, too. That's part of the, the problem with people's argument about this. They, they're like, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. There's no evidence that he acted alone. There's a lot of evidence that he was involved. When I was in uh, fifth grade, we had a... Uh, uh, his social studies teacher who was absolutely like beyond before Oliver Stone in the film this teacher was obsessed with the super bullet theory right the magic the magic bullet theory that you know went through Connolly's Mm -hmm. shoulder through his knee bounced out of his knee then hit Kennedy no hit Kennedy first Kennedy okay hit Kennedy first and then it was Connolly Mm -hmm. right Connolly's shoulder hand knee wrist right and like and we're like we're just fifth grade kids trying to like, you know, learn about George Washington or whatever. And she's like, do you understand the ballistics don't line up? And it's all she would talk about. So we'd come home mm. and my, it's all we would talk about with our parents and our parents would like call the school and be like, like, is this woman like this teacher? Like, she what's, Is she insane? Like, why are my kids only learning about the magic bullet? See, um, the thing is, the, the ballistics are not the big issue, because what people don't understand about ballistics is not a, a linear line between impact and exit. It hits things. You hit bones, and they deviate. Right, right. People shoot people, and the bullet comes out the front. It's wild things, ha- especially when you're at 22. But when the problem with that bullet is, first of all, they found it on the gurney. Like, how fucking convenient. Second of all, I believe there's more fragments, metal fragments, that were in Connolly's wrist than are missing from this bullet. Right. And the bullet looks pristine. It looks like a bullet that you shot through water. Anybody that shoots things with guns knows that when bullets hit bones, they distort. That's, that's part of, unless it's a steel-jacketed, you know, like armor-piercing round, that's what it looked like. I mean, that's just bonkers that was like that what went, it looked like after it yeah. went through kennedy and connelly that's it's bonkers it's bonkers to believe that yeah the idea that he wasn't that lee harvey oswald wasn't involved though i don't buy that either well, i think i think they set him up i think uh for sure he knew what was going on he seemed to have been some sort of an operative he w- went back and forth to russia there's a lot but that conspiracy it's like i don't know we're talking 1963 i don't you know but there's conspiracies today that are real. And this Sackler family is one of the best examples yes. of one that was enormously successful and worked on multiple levels. And this story about getting this regulator to approve it by putting him in a hotel for two weeks. How the fuck is that not illegal? Like, how is that not illegal? I mean, they they handle themselves. It, he, he spent a year still working for the FDA when, b- before he came and worked for um, Purdue. And um, it's pretty intense. I just saw a video that, that I, I don't know whether it was TMZ or somebody found the guy, the um, Curtis Wright, uh, up in, I think he's in New Hampshire, just like two days ago, and they like they kind of went after him. 
Oh wow! And I was like, they're like, what do you say? What do you have to say about the show? What do you, what do you think? And um, uh, he like got in his car and wouldn't talk. And then they just interviewed the local um, police chief for this town in New Hampshire, who said that well, we had no idea that this this guy's living in our town. Oh, I want to take him on a tour of our morgue and our cemeteries and show him. Uh, Show him. Um, you can. I think you'll find Curtis Wright if you look him up. Um, that is the definition of living in hell. Yeah, and now and and that's. You know, I think that people have asked. You know, like what what is justice? What does justice even look like in a situation like this? Right, like if you're. Uh, that's the guy and the red that yeah so that's Noel who plays him and the, that was just uh that's the actual that's guy. the actual um gentleman who who approved it that's the guy who was went and worked for so he just moved to a remote yeah, town moved to a remote town and after our show came out i, I think is it that was, a gun on his hip n i don't think so i tried what to, is that it's like a flashlight he's got like a rig Looks like he's a, got this phone in the front. Yeah, he's got a whole vibe going on, and a passport filled with trips to Thailand, probably. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but you know, like that's 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 the face of a big part of the issue. That yeah. you know, this yeah. guy was a bureaucrat working for the FDA, living his life in you know the East Coast. Someone came along and said, "Hey, you want to get out of here?" You're making 50 grand. This say that you believe this to be less addictive. That'll get us the approval. And you're good. We're going to make you good. And uh, here we are. And that revolving door still exists today. The people go from the FDA right into pharmaceutical companies today. For sure. <laughs> and, and, and it's it, so weird that that's legal. And another big part of the game are these medical journals, right? Like there's something called the New England Journal of Medicine. And like a big thing is for a doctor in, a new, in some of these, and these journals are owned by the pharmaceutical companies, right? So think about it. You own Purdue Pharma. You either buy or control medical journals that write favorable articles about your products, about your drugs. So in the case of OxyContin, there was an, a small, small, like almost a letter to the editor written about OxyContin being less than 1% addictive. In, in, the, in a medical journal, which so, sounds like official and like, okay, well, damn, Joe is in the medical journal, Right. Let, let's go. But these are controlled by drug companies, and they're not legit. It's fake news. It's real fake news, and it's all part of the ecosystem of, of selling drugs. <sighs> and these are the big drug dealers. Like we talk about Chepo or Pablo Escobar. You know, Eric Newman, my buddy who was the exec producer on this, he produced Narcos, and you know, went deep on. Um, Pablo Escobar, and he's like, when he when he first said you want to do this, he's like, these are the real drug dealers, like like th these are the these are the drug dealers putting up the real numbers, and they're the drug dealers who put their name on museums like the yeah. Metropolitan, the Guggenheim, the Louvre in Paris. These are like, these are the the big time hard hitting drug dealers. They're the real gangsters. Oh, they're fucking gangsters, man. It's and, such a gangster move to put your name everywhere too. Uh-huh. And especially on like education institutions. Dude, do you ever have you ever museums? been in the in the Metropolitan Museum of Arts 
uh, Temple of Dender, the giant glass. It's the biggest exhibit in the Met in New York City. And that was the Sackler Wing. And I would go in there when we were making the show. And I w- it was this giant. It's 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 on the um, north side of the Met. It's you, it's a massive art wing, and you go in there. It says the Sackler Wing, and you go in there, and there's parents running around with their kids. The last time I was there, I saw a guy get on his hands and knees and propose, and it's just this happy, joyful room built on oxycotton. And two, three months ago, they took the name down. They finally took the name down. Finally, yeah, they after fi- all these years. Yeah, so they've taken. And and this is the thing that, like, what Arthur Sackler cared more about than anything, which is, like, the same as Alfred Nobel, right? You know that Alfred Nobel made dynamite. That's how he made his money. It was a fascinating story that Nobel was was the inventor of dynamite. It's almost like an Oppenheimer si- situation. Wow. I didn't and, know that. And the story is that someone ran a false obituary. They thought he died, and they called him a merchant of death. The great merchant of death is gone. This guy, Nobel, who invented dynamite. And he, at that moment, he realized, fuck, this is how I'm going to be known. This is going to be my legacy, the merchant of death. He took a huge chunk of his fortune and started the Nobel Peace Prize. So when you hear the wow. name Nobel, you don't think about dynamite, right? He invented wow. dynamite, hand grenades and howitzer rounds and munitions. That was all Nobel. Now you just think, oh my God, Barack Obama just won the, Dalai Lama just won the, Martin Luther King and won the, like, this guy made it off of dynamite. That's insane. Right? And so the Sacklers were like the same thing. Wait a minute. We know what we're selling here. We know where our money's coming from. Look at that. Me- there Merchant you go. of death to pioneer of Nobel Prize. That, wow. that, the Nobel Peace Prize was a big bait and switch. So nobody wow. thought about the fact that this dude, you know, Go wow. look at the the body count of Vietnam. And this the, is interesting. He said many saw his invention what Alfred thought would end all wars, just like Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. as a highly lethal product. When Alfred's brother Ludwig died in 1888, a French newspaper accidentally published an obituary for Alfred that referred to him as the Merchant of Death. Wow. Right? Did you know that? I did not. That's a mind blower. Well, but it makes sense because that's how evil fucks are. They'll try to cover up what they're doing with humanitarian work. A hundred percent. And yeah. that's what the Sacklers did. Very yeah. like, okay, we're selling heroin and pills. Hold the we're like three hundred we're up to three hundred thousand deaths and a lot of wrecked families. Let's buy some art. Let's put let's let's donate to multiple medical schools, get our names on medical schools all around the country. Let's throw our name up on the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Guggenheim, um, uh, the the um, Louvre in Paris. They were putting their names on anything they could. There was a bridge in London that one of the Sacklers, the Sackler Bridge, like just anything to take your eye off the ball. And so to me, you know, whether they end up paying $6 billion or $16 billion, yeah, that that that's real. That that's deserved money. But I think the the bigger issue is the name. The dis, the evisceration of the name has is 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 in deep process right now, as it should be. Yes. And I just wonder how they're going to get away with it without paying criminal penalties. I mean, not just criminal penalties, but cr- like going to jail. 
It's hard to go to jail today if you've got a lot of money, Joe. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, it's a jail. I I don't. I can't imagine the Sacklers going to jail, but I think worse than jail is the fact that the name is now done. Yeah, and that hurts because this this was a family that was all about the legacy, mm. and that's over. Um, this guy that approved it, what was his name again? Curtis the Wright. Guy that they found. Imagine being that guy, because you didn't even get rich. You know, you got kind of rich. You made a lot of money, but you didn't get like billionaire. I can just go hide on an island, rich. You're in a small town in New Hampshire, and then they find you when yeah. this this series the series comes out. Yeah, I I don't. I never know like someone's morality. Like I always have trouble like understanding how different people process morality. And, and, and like what it would mean for, because you gotta assume a guy like that after, you know, 25 years has figured out a way of justifying to himself what he's done, right? Like we all do that. Like, I mean, we justify our, our, our behaviors. We don't engage in behavior like that, but we, whatever we do, we justify it. And I, I wonder how much it hurts, you know? Like we tried to contact Richard Sackler several times during the early, he used to live here in Austin, and um, we couldn't find him. He has a house here in Austin still. Um, but how how it feels, you know, there's never been a moment where there's been any kind of accountability, where, you know, Richard Sackler comes out and says, okay, okay, look, I am really fucking sorry. Let's just start with that. I, I, I am so sorry that this has happened. I'm so sorry for the pain. Like, and I can't undo it, but I want to first acknowledge that I'm sorry. I made some really bad decisions. I thought I, thought I was helping people. I wasn't. I didn't, there was never been, and I think that's where the anger comes from, so much of it. Do you think that, that that's because of legal advice? I mean, even if he was, I don't think you could admit that you're sorry in a situation as horrendous as this, because I think it opens up the floodgates for further scrutiny. I guess. I just, yes, you're probably right. But I, I guess I feel like, like you've already, you, you've, you've lost. You've lost. You've lost so much. And you're, you've lost so much money. Your reputation um, is, is destroyed. And if you look at, there's like a, 12-hour deposition of Sackler um, that that we recreate some of in the show. And the guy is just a fucking ice brick. Like, he offers nothing. There's no humanity there. And obviously his lawyers were advising him, yes. And he can't say a lot. But you, you want to... You want to believe that everyone's human. Yeah, like you want to see yeah. some version of like, okay, like can I understand how it happened? Do, do I think they set out to have all this death and destruction? I'm going to say no. I don't, I don't know, but I, I, I have to believe that they didn't intend for that. Then the ball got rolling. Then the money started coming in. Then it all got completely out of control. And by the time they realized how bad it was, they couldn't apologize, obviously. And, and they, they, were, they were boxed in by legal advice. But somewhere you're looking for some indication of like, look, ma'am, I am so sorry your son died. Not, not 
I'm sorry your son died, but your son was a drug addict. An instant deflection, mm. right? That's just like, that's rough. That's rough shit. It is rough. It's just, again, it's it's hard to understand the way certain people function, their their morals. Like, what what are their ethics, and are they sociopaths? Because there's a lot of people that are genuine sociopaths. They do not care if other people are hurt. They don't do not care about people's feelings. They only care about themselves. There are people like that out there in the world, and they're amongst us. And I don't know what the number is. Right. I think it's like one percent or something right. like that. Is it something like that, or is that schizophrenics? I think sociopath is probably even higher than that. Like, and some of it has got to be because how you were treated when you were young. Some of it has got to be nurture. Yeah. But I wonder how much of his nature. I wonder how much of his your wires are crossed wrong, and you just don't give a fuck about other people. It's totally possible. I mean, you you look at like Jeffrey Dahmer. His parents seemed to be normal. They didn't seem to abuse him. Right. He didn't have like some horrific childhood where he was, you know, tortured. It's like. What makes a person like that? I don't fucking know, man. But when you see it, it's so confusing. Like that Sackler guy in your show. It's like when you're watching him say what he says, like how does a person like this exist? Right. Right. And, you know, like obviously Dahmer is a fairly extreme example of. But is it? Because he only killed like six or seven people. Right. I I just mean that, but he really like put his hands on yeah. those people, oh, right? So that did. the yeah. idea of a serial killer is such an extreme real but extreme version of that. Right. But like how many times do you kind of come across someone who's who's maybe not killing people or engaged in a lethal career, but you're like, "Whoa, that dude doesn't seem reachable. I don't. I don't right. know what's going on there. Like, I'm trying yeah. to have some sort of human connection, but this dude is just like, yeah. you know. And I've I've met many people, generally, are, who organize their lives strictly around making money. Like, money is money is the prize. Money is the art. And I kind of I'm like, hello. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's a very weird non-human yeah. pursuit. Yeah, it's like I'm about making money and the, my morality and, um, you know, sense of humanity is just not very readily apparent. And I think that that's like on a spectrum, not that not necessarily that far removed from something that could turn into a Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, it's not that far. I mean, do you, do you ever, like, study Putin and try and figure out what's going on in that guy's head? I could only imagine. Like, I think it was Bush who said, you know, he had just come back from meeting Putin years ago, and he said, you know, I looked into his eyes and I didn't see a soul. And I remember, like, I was younger when he said that, but it chilled me. Like, and Bush looked, this was Bush too, and he's like, I looked into his eyes and I didn't see a soul. If you pull that quote up because that's yeah. crazy. Oh, God, I hope I said it right. Oh, the opposite. I looked the man in the eye. I found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Oh. Bush said, I was able to get a sense oh. of his soul. <laughs> yeah, well, it was glad either he got that. it or he didn't get it, right? Um, I always, but so, I'm so glad we searched that. Yeah, I am too. Because I was confused. I, I could have swore it was the opposite. Well, Okay, I was wrong about that one. But then he said he later, but he said he regretted it because he was wrong. He thought he saw a soul, but he didn't. He said that later? Well, that's what he said, right? He said he regret. Pull it back up. I think he said, I thought I saw, I saw, thought I saw a soul. In 95, Bush I later regretted saying this. Yes. 
How about that? Bush later regretted, regretted saying this. So, 95 met with Putin. So he thought he saw a soldier, but he didn't. That's what he came to believe. What does he say later? Did he try? He just said he's regretted it, according to. Uh, but I then was, I was not able to get a sense of his soul. I did not see the relentless ambition when I looked into Putin, looked Putin in the eye 27 years ago. But then I was not able to get a sense of his soul. Okay. I think that's the line that stuck with me. I was not able to get a sense of his soul. Well, he doesn't speak Russian either. That's got to be did you hard see, as fuck. Um, Just talking to someone in two different languages is extremely Have difficult. you been to Moscow? No, I have it, not. The architecture is insane. I loved it. I've been there twice. Russia's incredible. I loved it. And like one of the many things that's like sucks about this, I think, is like Moscow's just out now for for such a long time and for a long time yeah and yeah. i i've gone there twice for for film promotions and the people were so nice the the food was fantastic the architecture i mean walking through red square i loved it i loved the culture um and i it's too bad yeah it is too bad i would hope i hope one day to be able to go back there <sighs> yeah I mean, it, it's amazing how many great chess players, how many great martial artists, how many great authors. Russia's produced some incredible things, incredible works. And the architecture in Russia is so different than anywhere else. The Moscow architecture is so beautiful mm -hmm. and so unique, uniquely Russian. You know, it's really fantastic stuff. I mean, but it's just like the political aspect of it. It's so terrifying, man, that we're like this close to a nuclear war. God damn, it scares the fuck out of me. Yes, and I always wonder if the same sort of decision-making apparatus that exists in pushing through Oxycontin also exists in pushing through wars, also exists in pushing through just th things that like morally we would all say these are terrible, terrible things. We should all agree on this. And to be able to convince large groups of people to engage in them because you're the leader. I mean, something that, that I've been looking at for, for a while now is, is uh, try, trying to get into the um, our weapons contracting business, meaning like, you know, what the, the big ones, the McDonnell Douglas, the Raytheons, the Boeing, the companies that are making so much money. Um, I was uh, I was in Pearl Harbor working on a film, and they had the the nuclear submarines coming in and out of the harbor. And have you ever seen one these these Trident submarines? No. And uh, they're they're amazing. Like you know, it it it, it never ceases to amaze me that like many of our greatest creative accomplishments are these weapon systems, right? Like right. Have you've been on an aircraft carrier before, yes, or you know witness the awe and spectacle of it's those insane. planes right it's incredible and we were filming on a on a carrier in Pearl Harbor and and the subs kept coming in and out and they're these massive sleek they look like you know sharks and they're cruising slow and they dock Can in. I see one Jamie? And uh, and and I uh, we had handlers from Pearl Harbor there and I'm like you know could I could I tour one and they were they went to the admiral of the base and the word came back yes you can tour one so they took me to a to a, a nuclear uh, submarine that was tied up at pearl harbor and they took me on it and i go in i've got these you know 
public affairs people and the captain of the sub and they're showing me around the sub and you walk and they're just awesome and they're massive and they're full of people and and it's just all like the most like technical high-tech shit you've ever seen in your life and they're like this is the navigation room this is where we control the sub and they're showing me the equipment and i'm like how much does this equipment cost? And they're like, well, we can't, we can't really tell you, but it's, you know, 50, 100, between 50 and 100 million dollars for this area of the sub. And then they take me past the nuclear reactors where there's armed guys guarding the nuclear reactors because they're propelled by nukes. And I'm like, well, how, how much does it, we can't tell you, right? And then they get you into the, the torpedo rooms where there's these massive torpedoes, the dozens of them. And you're like, how much do these things cost? Ah, we, we can't tell you. We can't tell you. <laughs> then they take you to the fucking missile room oh where God. there's 10 missiles, okay? Missiles that have nuclear warheads that can go on them, right? Sir, how much do these cost? Well, we can't tell you that. But then you start looking up the prices, right? And you figure for a nuclear missile, with the warhead and the guidance system and all the propulsion, you've got to be looking at least 30 million. That's my guess. For one, what do you think a nuclear missile armed and loaded costs? I have no idea. I'm going to say 30 million minimum. Are you just right? guessing? I'm guessing, guessing, but I think I'm underguessing. Probably. And I've done some calculating. Oh, there was a, a question about this recently because um, the missiles that they shot at the Chinese air balloon, that balloon, the spy yeah. balloon, yeah. they missed one of them. And then there was a, a talk of how much that miss cost. cost. Right. A miss costs a lot of money. And so, but I'm on this sub and I'm looking at what appears to be. That one was 400K. What that it, was 400K? The ones that are out of the plane? Maybe it's different. But that wasn't a nuke. That wasn't, I'm talking no, about a yeah, nuclear, yeah. uh, a F-22 missile. Raptor. A nuclear missile fired from, from uh, a submarine, right? So here's, so now I'm on this thing. I'm counting these missiles, 10, 10 missiles right, that I can see. So I'm doing, trying to do the math. The 30, 300, I say it's $500 million worth of missiles on one sub, right? I'm looking, I can see eight subs docked in Pearl Harbor, right? So now I'm like, like there's 10 times eight, right? There's 80 missiles in my visual at 500 a missile. And these are just the subs I can see, right? So I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. If one of these subs fires one missile, right? We're fucked. We're done. The world is probably over, right? Yeah. One missile goes. We've got at least 80 of them that I can see. How many people are making money off of this game, right? Where's the money going that we have to keep putting, loading these submarines with nuclear missiles, one of which is going to get it done? That's not then including all the missiles that are in the silos, right? all the missiles that are flying 24-7 in planes and bombs, like we are loaded up good, right? We got enough, <laughs> yet we keep making more. And this is, you know, like Purdue Pharma, these these companies, and, and now it's all turning into like AI-controlled drones, right, that are going to be like the new forefront of the weapon systems where all the money is going to go. But I was thinking like what would happen if you took – two of these subs and took them offline and built, I don't know, schools, what would happen? Would, the, would, yeah. would, would, we, would we threat, would our national security be threatened? I don't know. Would, would our country be better off? I don't know. With all the money, all the money is going into the military. 
And that's, I'm support the military. You know, I've done multiple films about our troops and I understand, I've, I've been to Iraq with the SEAL platoon. I know what, you know, I've, I've, I've had a front row seat to the reality of what these men and women are going through. This kind of spending, it seems to me to be um, a, 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 a bit reckless. Well, at the very least, they're incentivized. They're incentivized to to be in conflict. If if there's that much money to be made, the for same, sure, the same way Purdue Pharma was was incentivized to pretend that it wasn't addictive, even though they knew it was. It's the same kind of thing. Like there's decisions that get made specifically because of money. That's really scary for us because we want to think that if we have a leader, we trust someone to be a leader. We have this thought in our head that this is our chief, right? This is the best warrior. This is the wisest person that's lived the longest and they're the best to govern us. We would never want to believe that someone that he appoints and that's in that chain involved in running all these people mm -hmm. is making decisions that will absolutely cost lives and souls. People will be destroyed, but they're making these decisions because of money. Because of money. And and it's like the same thing with um, with some of these drugs is the same thing with some of the big weapon systems. You know, some of like if you're if you're the uh, if you're the president, right? If you're the next president of, of the U.S. and you decide that you want to reduce spending in the military, so say there's a jet program, F-35, or some massive jet program that's costing a shitload of money, and you want to try and slow it down. Well, what they do is they build different parts of the aircraft in different states. So there might be 30 states that are all contributing to making one weapon system. So if you try and dismantle it, you've got the government, the representatives from 30 different states saying, you can't do it. We've got a factory that's making the guidance system. We've got a factory that's arming the, the, the ordnance on the, on the missiles. We're doing the landing gear. And the weapons are now part of the economy, and they can't be divorced from it, and the spending just goes on. Isn't there an argument on the other side, though, that we can't allow another country to achieve military superiority over us? And if we stop innovation and stop the flow of money into developing these new jets— that we would run the risk of that happening for sure and that's that's the you know that's what's going on with china right now right that we're in an arms race with china a lot of ai technology involved where like we're now starting to discuss letting ai fly and arm and release weapons on targets that that are AI assessed and AI um, authorized kills because China's doing the same thing, and we don't want we don't want to be outteched by China, and so we're you know in a in a never ending arms race to have the best technology. I get it. Okay, fine, let's do it. It's just a lot of money, you know, and and I can't help but think like, who's making money? Okay, it says CBO estimates that pl estimates that plans for U.S. nuclear forces, as described in the fiscal year 2023 budget and supporting documents, would cost 700. Oh my God, 756 billion over the 2023-2032 period. Okay, nine years, uh, 122 billion more than CBO's 2021 estimate for the 2021 to 2030 period. 
Sorry, guys, we we underestimated by 122 this billion. This is our uh, B61 nuke. That's they put on a lot of planes and stuff. Right. Yeah. Do you have a price tag on that one? Yeah, I do. It's uh, roughly 28 million. Okay. Wow, you're so, dead on. So <laughs> this is what I'm saying. We have 3,000 like, of them. Okay. Jamie, can you? How many um, do we have? Somewhere in the range of three to four thousand. So what's the total number just on that missile? Can you do that multiplication? Thirty times three thousand. Could you imagine like the horror of how many missiles do we have? How many of those? I uh, there's something in the range of I found some that's we had thirty seven hundred nukes. At 20, Let's round it off to three thousand five hundred. Imagine three thousand five hundred nuclear missiles launching through the air. The horrors one, of that. One They're of those just, is uh, eighty three Hiroshima bombs. Just two, just one of them. It's over, game over. One, three Hiroshima bombs. Yes, that's like this is the issue. Like, holy, like, yeah, even that fuck. one blew up in the sky, and these can go underground and make things worse. Oh I my guess. god, but those are just air delivered. Yes, can those you show are, me that sub, that nuclear sub? Those I, are, to, I mean, there's a few, I don't know exactly the one he saw. I was trying to find a good picture from. Pearl Harbor of a bunch of subs. It is pretty one. fucking amazing. They're amazing. They have a sub they're, that they're, runs on a nuclear reactor. They're beautiful achievements of amazing. engineering and you know skill and talent and it, like to be on that thing was awe-inspiring. But my God, are they expensive? Yeah, like, like really expensive. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, can't get one that does something like that for cheap. But it's just, it is kind of amazing that our biggest accomplishments are in the world of weaponry. In the world of weaponry. And like... I mean, other than communication, like cell phones and and the like, and, and uh, wireless internet, the, this is crazy that they develop a nuclear-powered underwater m weapon that is designed, capable designed to deliver taking out a country. Yeah, designed really only to deliver nuclear missiles. I mean... How, how many does this motherfucker carry on it? How many cities can this thing take out? I mean, this, instantly. And we ha and how many do we have? Like I've seen, like I said, I saw six of them in Pearl Harbor. Imagine and being those kids. These kids look like they're like twenty years old. Look how young they look. That kid that looks like that could be my friend's son. And the bottom right with the glasses. Yeah, that is wild. Mm -hmm. Wild to be that young. You're holding a machine gun. On a nuclear-powered tank. Oh, you're that dude. That you're the captain. Water. Look at this guy. You're the Vice Admiral Bill Houston. You run Ooh. that shit. You run that. Like, we talk about power, like what we think of power, and, you know, like... That's a crazy job like, that guy like has. Dana White has a tough job. That's a job. <laughs> That's a job. This has to be so nerve-wracking for all these people on board, especially Remember? when it goes in the water, when you know you're underwater. Like, Jesus Christ. I know they work. I mean, but do you remember the, there was a Russian one that went down? There was a nuclear yes. sub that went down? Yes. And that's where the term can neither confirm nor deny. That's when it was because they had to answer. So they had to have an answer to like, is this going on? Are you guys yeah. retrieving a nuclear sub from yeah. Russia? Like, what's going on? So because they had to answer, I don't think they have to answer now, but they had to come up with a phrase. Can neither confirm nor deny. Yeah. What was that about? Which, uh, which sub was that? I think they allegedly recovered it which is crazy so we have the ability to recover a nuclear sub at the bottom of the ocean like, what the hell man i mean that's the the more time i've spent with uh with the military like i when i went um i when i was writing lone survivor i got to go to iraq with the seal team and see them 
operating and see the the skill with which they operated. You know, and that that that's almost a, a there's no technology involved there. Like seals seals don't don't really need this kind of stuff. That's just more like give me a jeep, give me some night vision goggles, give me some good intel on where the guy is, and I'll deal with it. That was that was beautiful. That was like the most elite team training and discipline and structure I'd ever seen. So on, on a human level, what I observed with with a group like like the SEALs was such an, um, an incredibly advanced form of team behavior. Then when you get into this stuff, the have you ever seen a, um, an Apache helicopter up close? And seeing no. these So these pilots for Apache helicopters, we use some in loan, they're wearing, they're like, these, these helicopters pull up and they're just incredible looking pieces of equipment. And these 22-year-old kids are flying them. And they've got a helmet with a mask and they call it slaving the ship to the goggles. So they, they, they activate the goggles so that wherever they turn, the helicopter turns. And where they've got eye sensors so where their eyes go, the guns go. Right. So I, you look at it, you kill it. And we're, they're giving us these demonstrations That's and they're insane. flying them all around the set. And I'm like, OK, I've seen the pyramids. I've seen the Notre Dame Cathedral in France. I've <laughs> I've seen a lot of Van Gogh's. They're beautiful. I saw the Mona Lisa. That was great. Seeing this fucking helicopter turning as the guy's head turns with the weapon systems. I'm like, who's building cooler shit than this <laughs> like like yes it wins it wins there it is our greatest achievement are these weapons of death they're incredible i just like well that's what you can make if you have an unlimited budget and really smart guys like yeah really Oppen smart Opp engineers. oppenheimer had a hell of a like mm -hmm. that was a great build right mm -hmm. that was a great build but man it's expensive and it's kind of a bummer when this shit gets used. It's really bad. What do you think about all this UAP, UFO stuff? Have you thought about this? Do you think that this is some sort of a government program? Like they, they've developed these high-speed drones in secrecy? I mean... Because that's one I, prevailing theory. I have trouble understanding... Like, take the UFO aspect of it, right? Right. Like, yes, there's absolutely zero question on Earth that there's life out in the solar system. It's an infinite solar system. It goes infinite on forever. Universe, yeah. I'm sorry, infinite universe. Um, smoke some 5-MeO and you'll go out there, right? Right. And, and, like, yes, it's out there. The government keeping it secret and being that, capable to find it and keep it secret i don't know um i took mushrooms with my friend mike gregorio and we tried to get on to area 51 one day <laughs> and we drove up there and like we That's just such an i just did mushrooms thing to do oh yeah we tried and we <sighs> like have you ever t gone up there no i have not because it's this road area 51 it's this highway and the, and the base is over a mountain but the road goes on forever and you're driving and we're high as fuck on mushrooms and we keep it but <laughs> we're not getting any closer to the mountain and we're driving and we're driving and we're driving <sighs> and suddenly there's a white van behind us right with the light on and we're like oh fuck okay good like this is kind of what we thought might happen and sure enough guys get out military dudes with guns and they're looking at us like okay you guys are on mushrooms right we, we've seen this we've seen this turn around it's so common. 
in. Turn around. That's hilarious. You're it's almost not, like the mushrooms want you to go to Area 51. You're not getting on the base. They're like, there's a hotel called the Little Alien. Go down there with everybody else that's on mushrooms. And, and you could sit out there all night and have all your theories. But you're turning around. And we're like, roger that. That's and amazing. So that's I don't, so funny that they called it. Yeah, they knew it. Like they just, it just came, must like, be so like, common. Buddies are like, let's take some shrooms and get on Area 51. <sighs> and these guys, they're not. They weren't nasty or tough, but they're like, yeah, yeah. You're gonna turn around, drink some water, <laughs> turn around, and go to the Little Alien Hotel. Uh, you're allowed to get like a certain distance, and then it's illegal. And I, I believe they had to expand that distance. I want to say it was during the Obama administration. They had to acknowledge the. It might have been before that. They had. It might have been Clinton. They had to acknowledge the existence, or it might have been Bush rather. They had to acknowledge the existence of Area Fifty One in order to expand the forbidden zone. Yeah. Because they had a forbidden zone, but like they did no not acknowledge. Fly, no flyover. No drive. No, no you drive. can't hike in because people were filming things. John Lear, in particular. A lot of people were filming things that, that set up like very strong telescopes and high-speed optics, and they were filming these tests right. of these things. Whether or not these things were UFOs or whether it's top-secret shit they're working on, obviously the stealth bomber came from that program. The Harrier jump jet, yeah. which would like vertically mm -hmm. lift and then take off. They made a lot of wild shit that is absolutely from us. But the, the alleged claims, and the most fascinating one is this guy Bob Lazar, who claims to have worked at S4, which is a, one, a site four of Area 51, and he was on a program designed to back engineer this recovered disc. It's a fascinating story, because if he's full of shit, oh my God, what a great story. This guy's pulled the wool over people's eyes for 30 years. Right. Because he told the story in like 1989 was the first time he told it. So it's more than 30 years. So, but he's... Also, he has like real knowledge of the the area. He has real knowledge of Los Alamos Labs, where they they tried to say that he never worked there, but then they found him on the employee roster from the time he he went in there. People knew him, right? Like it seems like the guy really was a propulsion specialist, and they really did try to get some off the fucking beaten path scientists like let's take because they have to get fresh eyes in these things allegedly every few years they bring in but everyone's sworn to secrecy and it's very compartmentalized so the metallurgy guys are not allowed to talk to the propulsion guys the propulsion right. no, no one gets together and goes what the fuck is this right, like, they can't right. have a group of science so they exist in a team form and it just does it doesn't work that way they need more people and he said no one was able to figure out anything about it other than there's some sort of a reactor that worked on some new element. It was theoretical back then, but now they know it's a real element. It was I discovered. mean, I, I will believe it. Like, I have no reason to not believe it and to certainly not, like... What I was getting at, though, is yeah. that, like, when you see an insane system like these helicopters and the, the, the goggles, and then you see these insane nuclear-powered submarines and these insane aircraft carriers, like, what we have, Bill, is so fucking mind-blowing. Why wouldn't we think that we've hit some next-level propulsion system and that the reason why the Pentagon is talking about out-of-this-world crafts, they're obscuring reality. Like, the reason why people are, like, coming forward and telling you about their experience in this program, like, maybe that's obscuring reality. It might be bullshit. It might be that we, we the government and the military and the contractors don't want any of our enemies to know that they have some fucking bonker shit that can go literally, like, the speed of light. That we have. That we have. If, um, 
So I was just working up in uh, New Mexico, and like we were filming around Los Alamos. Have you have you ever been to Los Alamos? No. And like, it's uh, it's amazing that like people just haven't seen the laboratory, the current Los Alamos Research Laboratory, which is you know across the street from where Oppenheimer lived when he was doing the Manhattan Project, which was this boys' school that they kicked everyone out and all the scientists moved in, which was not in the film, which is quite interesting. Like, Los Alamos, if you can ever go there and see the museums and, you know, it's just a fascinating place to see where they built that bomb. But across the street, or actually across this river from where Oppenheimer lived, is now the current Los Alamos research laboratory. Pull up a picture of that one if if you want to see something mind-blowing. It's bigger than... UCLA campus. It's this massive research facility um, in Los Alamos, which, and you can't see half of it. It's supposedly a giant chunk of it is underground. It's completely (laughs) armed. We would drive, there's a road, that road at the top there is this access road that we would drive every day to go up. There's a ski mountain above it. So for some reason, they let you drive fairly close, but it's all Homeland Security protecting it, super fortified and armed, and it's in the middle of fucking nowhere. And this was birthed from, yeah, you can see where it is, right? It's in the middle of nowhere. Literally in the middle of nowhere. We first got up there and we're like, what are they doing here? And like... Everyone's like, well, it's digital warfare, it's um, n- nuclear maintenance, it's you know, alien dissection. It is like, <laughs> like, like, forget Area 51. This place was like, you know, to, so if we're inventing shit, this is the kind of place we're inventing it. And we went out a couple of days to these, uh, there's you know, some restaurants and bars in the town of Los Alamos. And I'm like, if I'm China, I'm just hiring, I'm hiring hot girls, getting them to turn and putting them as bartenders or cocktail waitresses because all the scientists from Los Alamos just go there after work and get drunk. That's where, that's where everything's going down. Wow. Like you got it. Like half of it's underground. Well, that's what they say. Like we'd be up on this mountain. If there's a, it did this place. That's what it looks like. Wow. Massive. Oh, and it's, it's in the middle of it's nowhere. It's in the middle of nowhere. That's so wild. And like, I'm like, I try and start conversation. I'm like, guys, what do you know about Los Alamos? Jamie, what's that image to the left? It's got all I, the. I looked it up too. What is that? I don't know what it is. What the but fuck they've got is like they've that? got like the um, accelerators. You know, have yeah. you ever heard like particle accelerators? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure half your listeners know what this is. Yeah. But like, this is all was all started by Oppenheimer. Wow. Every the whole the. It used to be a log cabin. That, no, that's the school. <laughs> that? I think that's the school that they took over. They show a little bit of it. In, oh, for in all Nolan's the scientists? Film. Yeah, it was such a crazy story, like how they just, these scientists just moved into this this school, kicked all the kids out under you know national security order, and the scientists moved in, and they just, and like to your point, no one knew what anyone else was doing when they were building the bomb. So you're working on one part, I'm working on another. Our wives have no idea what's going on. Um, we're going out and building the bomb all day and coming home and just like drinking. They all drank and like, wow. I think there was like, a lot of wife swapping and weird shit going on too. <laughs> they were just partying and building fucking nuclear bombs. Jesus. And now you go out there and see what 
There's, and it's just like, I just want to know, what are we doing? How much does it cost? And who's in charge? And Los Alamos now, so, so if there is those systems, in my mind, if there was an alien ship found the government wanted, they're going to take it to Los Alamos. That's where they're going to take it. That's where they're going to dissect it. And whatever's going on out there is some deep and real shit. <laughs> That's where Lazar worked. Um, if you go from Orville, Wilbur and Orville Wright's invention of the aircraft, how long is the time period before someone drops a nuclear bomb out of one? How yeah. much time is between? Was it sixty years? Like what was? That, when was Wilbur and Orville's great, first that's flight? That's a great question. Because if you think of that, just think of like what an insane jump in technology from the very first airplane to dropping a nuclear bomb out of one well, inside yeah, of a lifetime, or just dropping a bomb, right? You're like right. weaponizing. Yes, air flight. Weaponizing air flight and like. But a nuclear bomb, yeah, even more insane the, because of the technology involved. Just what a nineteen oh two is around when they credit them for flying. That was Kitty Hawk. Wow, I'm trying to find the I exact. I thought it was eighteen hundred. Yeah, I did too. That seems late. Nineteen oh two. That's crazy. So that's forty five years. Is that real? Right, about forty. Oh and, my god! So forty five years before they dropped a nuclear bomb out of it. That's what it is, right? It's 47? Yeah, I'm seeing like 1903 is the plane, so that's when I think they got the patent. Was oh Kitty Hawk? But Kitty Hawk wasn't 1903, was it? The flight? I don't think it was. I'll double check. Wow. Yeah, December 1903. Oh, my God. Well, that makes sense, though, because there's video of it. There's film of it. So it has to be when When did they invent film? Yeah, you could, there's some stuff from the 1800s, but it's... Rough. Yeah, it was bad film. It was like yeah. jumpy, like yeah, um, right. But so your point is like l how short a period of time that what an insane jump. Right? And so where is it going, right? right. Like, and what do they have already? Uh, like if they have programs to do something like Los Alamos Labs, if they have programs to do something like Area S four, if they can develop these insane machines in silence, what it. What did, what have what else do they AI what else do they AI controlled aircraft that's going to fly? There was just yeah. a great article in the New York Times yesterday about it. All these companies that are now scrambling to take over the buildings, which which is a threat to the established weapons manufacturers, jet builders, because they're the the future are fighting China in in a large, like full scale and battle is going to be. AI controlled drone dependent. So rather than sending human beings in $60 million jets, they're going to send swarms of two or $3 million AI controlled fighter drones. And those are going to be self driven, right? Self flown, the way Elon's trying to get self driving vehicles. I mean, self that this is the plan. Great article yesterday. And that's, that's where it's going. And if Orville Wright could see that. Robot wars. A hundred percent robot wars. Robot wars. Like <laughs> like um, Cameron had it right, you know? Yeah. Terminator had it right. And, yeah. And like, like AI, dude, right? Like, it's on. It's crazy. It's crazy, you I mean, know? I think this is what, uh, not to, I'm not defending Ted Kaczynski, but this is what Ted Kaczynski's manifesto was about, was the constru construction of technology was going to, replace the human race what is this jamie that's an ai drone 
Wow. I mean, this is, this is, uh, whoa. This is the future. Look you at know, this fucking thing. And like, my business is on strike, you know, the writers, and, and, mm -hmm. and, and I'm, I support my strike, but, you know, AI is a big issue. We don't, like, everyone's worried about AI. Right. Well, everybody's worried about AI, yeah. right? Like, AI is going to be fighting our wars, and, and like, you know, when... AI is going to be writing books. When, when Trump was talking about Space Force back in the day, like, this is Space Force. Yeah. This is real Space Force shit. Yeah. And... It's funny they didn't even think of that in Star Wars. AI? No, no, they didn't. Isn't that wild? Like in Star Wars, no one had a cell phone, and yeah, no, but they had lightsabers. They, they did have lightsabers. I mean, come on, pretty dope. Definitely dope. Yeah, they had R two. R two helped with some shit, but I don't know what he was really doing. But he was so sad all the time. He was so annoying. Um, but imagine, <laughs> but there's a giant <laughs> difference between that and sending a a, a pilotless jet to engage in in combat. It seems like that's the direction. Yeah, I get I, fucking so terrified when I watch those Boston Dynamic videos of those robots that they're inventing. Yeah, it's crazy. They're getting um, so good. They're acrobats dude, now. I went to um, MIT. Uh, we filmed something at MIT, and they took me into the robotics department, like down in the basement, and they showed me like these ten kids did a presentation. You've been to campus at MIT? Yes. Fucking cool, right? Yeah. Um, uh, we got to film on the campus. We're, we're the first film, Patriot's Day, because one of the MIT cops was killed by the Marathon bombers. They they killed him after the bombing. And so they wanted to honor him, and they let us film there. And they took us down to the robotics wing and showed us a robot cheetah that they had invented <laughs> that was sp sprinting up and down the halls and jumping over little obstacles. And I'm like, I'm like what? And like, yeah, Can I our, see that? Show me the... MIT robotic cheetah, the um the those little ones that look like dogs. They it was the shit out. oh like it, that yeah. It, like but that. it was it was a cheetah. It was different than this. These things scare the shit out of me because you could just easily see them with a gun on. Yeah, them. that's RoboCop shit. And um, if you watch that uh, Netflix show Black Mirror, yeah, there's a great one show. great great episode. Did you ever see the uh, heavy metal episode? Uh, is that about robots? It's about one of these things chasing after this lady. Yeah. It's fucking great. It's terrifying. But you look at how it moves and gyrates. It's it's real, and it's like you talk about like so. Look at that, and think about the progression that the Wright brother from the Wright brothers to uh, you know Hiroshima in terms of aircraft. Fifty years that technology. That was what they were doing with the cheetah. Oh, this one. That was what. That was. This is that, is that MIT? Ago. Yeah, this was ten years ago. Ten yeah. years ago. Look this, how, how fast this it's going. is what they showed me. But it was they put a, a like a cheetah a cheetah skin over it. This is twenty eight miles an hour. I bet it goes a hundred now. Like think about <laughs> it's that. It's probably electric now. We were talking about electric think engines. Think about that with a lightsaber attached yeah. to its head, just like <laughs> charging through crowd control. <laughs> right? Look at this thing. That looks like a giant that's, dog. That's the root. See the cheetah tail there on the. Go, see that cheetah tail? Mm -hmm. That was the room we were in. Ah. That's MIT, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the actual room we were in. Laser distance data. So it's it's figuring out distances between things. It just got faster one year ago. Wow, what that fucker! Like, <laughs> like, think about the applications. Yeah, like it's not good. It's not going to teach people. Give me go, go, go. What's one like? What's one kind, loving, positive application for that thing? Like rescue, pull I, people out of a. Mine. I have a dog. Yeah. Oh, okay. It may be rescue. 
But they're I, not going to use it for that. No, they're not, dude. <laughs> they're not. That's coming like in your door. Remember, right. remember when uh, was it? Gates was the the L.A. chief of police who first used a tank in South Central Los Angeles. Do you remember that story? I don't remember. Oh that. God, I think it was Gates was his name, and he was the like his strategy was okay. If you're holed up in your uh, your house and we want to arrest you, we're going to put a battering ram on a tank, and he drove his tank, and I mean he got in huge, tremendous troubles. Like Jesus. the beginning of like the LAPD being called out for like militarization, you know, excessive, excessive. Nancy Reagan raided a South Central crack house. What? Was it, yeah, what? This, this, I think this is it. They're this is it? it? Yeah, it was like a, the first uh, designer drug raid. Is what wow. It. It, was a, it says peer publicity stunt. Nancy, look at this. Nancy Reagan wanted to find a way to maintain her visibility as an anti-narcotics crusader now that her husband was out of office. Chief Gates was looking toward a possible gubernatorial run, which mercifully never came to pass. For those arrested, it was another day in the war that American politicians and police had declared on black and brown communities. They really rolled in with a tank. Yeah, they did. The they put they put a um, battering ram on a tank, and and roll, rolled in. You know that that's another you know interesting element of painkiller that we touch upon was the parallels between um, between oxycontin and and crack cocaine you know the crack ep epidemic mm -hmm. oh yeah there it look is look at that that's lapd like rescue going after <laughs> going after uh that's the war on drugs in los angeles that's rescue that we need to rescue you from your life <clears throat> but that that was how crack was dealt with right in the 80s mm -hmm. and if you look at Oxycontin and what the Sacklers were able to do and how they were able to basically take something much more lethal and certainly more profitable than fucking crack and get away with it. Like that's that's something that we we talk about quite a bit. It's pretty insane. It's pretty insane that this is the reality of our current generation that money allowed this to happen. And that influence allowed this to happen, and most people just trusted their healthcare professional. And they tr and that in like in, as it said in the film like, or in your show, you know that guy's trusting the FDA. He's trusting them that they know what they're doing. What do you think you would do if, uh, you know, you you hurt yourself? You were training and you know had a, had a really painful injury. Say, you know, you really fucked up your shoulder. And, you know, in between, the immediate pain was, you know, very high. And, mm -hmm. and a doctor was like, okay, here's the deal. Like, this is going to really fucking hurt. We, we recommend a low dose of an opioid. How would you, how would you react to that? Well, um, I've had that happen. Um, I, I have uh, had knee surgery. And when I was on, uh, in the hospital, they had like a morphine drip. And it was wonderful. It's a very like apparently you press the button and you get more morphine. Sure, that, that I think that's how it worked. This is uh, ninety two mm -hmm. somewhere around there, ninety three. Um, but when I got my nose fixed, um, I got my nose fixed a, a few years back, and the it didn't even hurt. 
and the doctor prescribed medicine. Oh, I should bring it back to the first surgery when I when I got the drip. When I got the drip, he did give me Vicodin. It was either Vicodin or Percocet. Yeah. I can't remember which one it was. I'm pretty sure it was Vicodin, though. I only took it once, and I felt so stupid. It made me feel so dumb and just dull that uh, it wasn't a wonderful feeling. It wasn't Oxycontin. It wasn't a wonderful feeling at all. It sucked. And so I only took it once, and then I just dealt with the pain. And that was a pretty significant knee surgery because it's a patella tendon graft. So right. they take a piece out of your shin bone, right. a piece out of your patella tendon, and a piece out of your kneecap, and then they open you up like a fish and screw into your bones. But I didn't take anything else. I was like, I'm not taking shit. I'm just going to deal with pain. And then when I got my nose fixed, the doctor fixed it, and uh, he prescribed me two different opiates. One of them was OxyContin, and I forget what the other one was. And How uh, long ago was this? 15 years ago. Um, and when he prescribed it to me, I'm like, but it doesn't hurt. I'm like, it doesn't hurt. Like right now it doesn't hurt. You did the operation. It's done, right? Like it's not hurting. I mean, it's uncomfortable because I've got these fucking sponge things shoved up my nostrils with little tubes in them to expand my nostrils and allow it all to heal in the right form. After it was Sounds horrible. It sucked. But yeah. it's a really good move. If you have a deviated septum, yeah. Yeah, yeah. my nose, I broke my nose for the first time when I was like five, and I think I broke it who knows how many times after that. Maybe a dozen. It was destroyed. The inside of my nose was all fucked right. up. It was completely closed off. Uh. So they fixed it. This, the doctor was fantastic. He fixed it, and he, but he tried to give me two different opiates. He's like, you're going to need these. And I was like, but it doesn't hurt. Like, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm telling you right now, I'm not in pain. Am I going to be in more pain? Like, how am I going to be in more pain later? I think, like, right after the operation, right. it's the most pain. You'd be maxing out. And he goes, uh, you're going you're gonna to be very, very uncomfortable. Just take this prescription. And uh, I took it home. And I uh, just put this prescription in the drawer. I go, okay, if it gets crazy, if something happens, and I just I can't sleep, and I'm in agony, it never hurt at all. It was just uncomfortable. Just a little, you know, like I got punched in the nose. Right. But it wasn't like I can't sleep. I was like, this isn't fine. Like, what the fuck are you talking? You're trying to give me heroin yeah. for this? Yes, he was. This is crazy. He did give you heroin. Two different that. kinds. I forget what it was, but I, one of them was Oxycontin. One of them was something else. But I'm like, you're giving me two different kinds of painkillers? And this is when I was kind of already aware of that because I already had people in my family that had had in, uh, issues with pills. And I was like, dude, what are you giving me? Yeah, it's it's really disturbing. My uh, my son broke his collarbone playing lacrosse, and I had to take him to um, the hospital in Connecticut. And you know, the doctor's like, "Okay, you broken collarbone. There's not much we can do." When you know, he was sixteen or seventeen, and he wrote him a script for oxycontin. And I'm like, "Are you out of your fucking mind?" And I'm like, what? "Like, I held it the." The prescription, like, are you out of your mind? And the doctor's like, it works. It works. There's going to be pain. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I do wonder, you know, um, I remember, uh, you know who uh, uh, Marcus's brother, Morgan Luttrell? Have you mm -hmm. ever met him? No, I haven't. Tough dude. And when I, I, when I was getting ready to do the film, I had heard about Morgan, but I never met him, and I and he had fallen out of a helicopter doing training and broken his back, and was was in recouping in in Virginia, and 
I, I knew he'd been hurt, and so I, I wanted to meet him because they're very close, and I knew if I was going to make a film about Marcus, I had to at least meet Morgan because Morgan's a powerful figure in Marcus' life. So I flew out there and went to his house. I got there late at night, and a bunch of seals in the house, and, and Morgan was sitting in a chair, and and they were they were watching TV, and, and he was just sitting there, and he was every once in a while he would tremble, and... You know, he hadn't, he decided he wasn't going to take anything. It had broken back. I'm like, dude, you're not taking anything? And he's like, fuck no. I'm not taking anything. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to experience this pain. I'm going to, I'm going to process this pain. I'm going to use this pain. Mm. And he wrote out his broken back without any pain, uh, without any pain medication. And it, it did make me think, and I, I, I still think, you know, how, pain adverse we all are right like oh it hurts make it go away right make it go away give me the quickest path to being pain-free drink this smoke this buy this yeah fuck this Mm -hmm. whatever right and that we're so bad at tolerating pain and the expectation is oh okay joe we just worked on your nose you're gonna feel pain take this you don't want that pain no you don't want that pain you can't handle that pain and we're just so fucking soft when it comes to pain. Well, it's right? also I think we've been programmed to think that when you're in pain, you need to take medication, regardless of the dangers of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I remember this sad story from COVID where this woman overdosed on Tylenol. She died from acetaminophen poison, which is apparently fairly common. If you take a lot of Tylenol, your liver can't process it and you get liver yeah, failure. Yeah. And wow. it's just from pain. You know, just didn't want to feel it. I don't want to feel like this. Give me something that makes me not feel like this. But, I mean, I have not had back surgery, but I've had three knee surgeries. And I told you on the one, I took uh, the one uh, Vicodin. But then after that, I didn't take anything. So my right knee, when I got it done, I didn't take shit. And I got my left knee scoped. I didn't take shit. And then I got uh, the nose fixed. Didn't take shit. I was like, you just deal with pain. But back pain, I think, is a different animal. Back pain is debilitating in a way that um, I haven't experienced. I could walk around on crutches if my knee was fucked up. Right. You know, there's a there's a difference, and I think you got to be really uh, cautious. I, like I don't want to make anybody feel bad because they're taking medication for back pain, because I think back pain is something where it just overwhelms your existence if you have a bad herniated disc. It does. I've overwhelms. Had I've had them. I had surgery on them and. And like yeah, I, what I, did you get done? Did you get it fused? Or I, had, did you get... I had the discectomy. Okay, so they took uh, a little bit of your disc out. Yeah, a in little the future, bit. if you're ever going to do something like that again, like we were talking about stem cells, that's the fix. And I, I avoided that kind of surgery. You think stem cells for herniated discs? Yes, yes, stem cells and traction, spinal traction. It depends on how bad it's herniated, whether it's bulging or whether it's ruptured. Uh, whether it's ruptured, they, they do have disc replacements that many people have done now. There are these t- titanium articulating discs. My friend Eddie got it in his back. Aljamain Sterling, who is the UFC Bantamweight champion, he got it in his neck. Or the steel. Yeah, it's a titanium uh, articulating disc. And was so he they, able to fight he after? He fought he... again and he defended the title. He defended the title one, he won two, I think three times after that. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, three times. And he actually defended the title more than anybody ever has in that division. Do you think his neck was stronger? A hundred percent. Like it was stronger than prior to the injury? Yes. No, 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 no. 
No, not as strong as like if he's not injured. He at wasn't all. like the Bionic Man that was rebuilt stronger. And I don't believe had so. An advantage, but it might be the same. It might be that his neck is the same. You, you strength in your neck comes from you know, obviously the structure, the bones, but it also comes from working your neck out. You know, like there's a bunch of exercises that guys do to strengthen their neck. And sometimes when guys don't do that, then they run into problems like bulging discs. But you're going to run into those anyway in combat sports. It's inevitable. But I know of many, 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 many people now that have sought help, particularly uh, overseas, uh, whether it is in Peru uh, or Panama, rather, Colombia or Tijuana. Uh, the CPI Institute in Tijuana. I know and there's BioAccelerator in Colombia that's very good. They've taken care of a lot of UFC athletes. Right. A lot of guys get stuff fixed. Why can't this stuff be approved in the U.S.? Like if My it, suspicion yeah. is the same suspicion when you see the influence that these pharmaceutical drug companies have over the FDA. Wow. My suspicion is that there has probably been an analysis done of what would happen if stem cell use was ubiquitous. What, what would happen if it was everywhere? What would happen if you allowed people to use stem cells the way Surgeons we allow people? Surgeons would have trouble. Well, maybe, but certainly more people would get healed. More people would get fixed. Like, I don't know of anyone who has had, and this is just my own anecdotal experience, I don't know of anyone who's had bad experiences with stem cells. I've had people that I know that did it and it didn't help them, but upon further examination, either their problem was too big and it, needed, it required surgery, or... In the most poor, we're dealing with like fighters, and a lot of these guys just don't wait long enough before they go hard. They go back and they train hard. They have like a, a knee issue or a shoulder right. issue, and they go back they and they train. Heal. They train. They're too savage. They get right back into it as soon as they start feeling good. And you really need a lot of time for it to take root, and many many months for it to really heal. But like I've said many times on the show, and I told you earlier, I had a full length rotator cuff tear. Right. My doctor assured me I was going to need surgery. But why were you able to do it? In the U.S., it was different. It was there was different regulations when I did it. The whatever I don't remember exactly what mesenchymal stem cells and they used exosomes. I don't exactly remember like what it all was, but I know I remember that it's all processed from umbilical cords. So say if a, a young lady like and I think you have to be 25 years or younger has a baby through a C-section, then they harvest their umbilical cord. I don't know, they sell it or whatever, and then they convert that into stem cells, and that is unique, particularly unique in its ability to help heal any kind of tissue. Right. But the difference between what you're allowed to do in America now is different from what it was back then, but also the stuff they're doing in these other places overseas is much more dramatic. Because they, they can they can use much larger doses and they keep you there for three days and they also combine it with hyperbaric therapy and a bunch of other different things that also accelerate your healing, NADIV drips, a bunch of different things that help along the process of your healing, and I know many people that have avoided surgery because of that and now are back to 100. percent But it doesn't mean you don't need surgery. Like there's certain disc issues that that are ruptured beyond the point of repair, and you probably need something done. And it's nice that there is all these different options. You just you have to be careful. You know, whenever you're getting something that's an operation, like especially if you're getting a replacement, like a knee replacement or something, you, all that stuff you got to be careful. But you think that it's possible that the FDA is being coerced by other forces to keep this shit out of the U.S.? I absolutely don't know. Right. I'm but guessing. it's possible. I think if it's possible that a human being, a lone human being, could be taken into a hotel room and for of a couple course. of days 
and then comes out and he has a $400,000 a year job after he retires. And this revolving door does exist. We know that. We know that exists. Yeah. Why wouldn't you protect your interests by stopping some sort of a novel, new sort of uh, treatment that may lead to way less people on pain medication, way less people that need anti-inflammatories, way less people that need a lot of the stuff you sell? It makes sense it does. to me. And then you go, oh, the dangers of stem cells. But Oxycontin is safe and effective. <laughs> like, that's so nuts. That's so nuts that they yeah. say that. Because, because where are the, are the dangers? Like where are the bodies? Where are the bodies? We, we, uh, where are the the, bodies? I haven't heard about stem cell addiction. Um, uh, I haven't heard of stem cell overdoses. Yeah, where are the bodies? Where yeah. are the bodies? I, I have a, a bunch of anecdotal stories from UFC fighters, jiu-jitsu athletes, good friends of mine. A lot of them, like dozens of guys who have gone and had massive relief from stem cells. Yeah, I got a buddy in the UFC right now who just just went down to I think Bogota. And yeah, he's doing so because I have I have some back issues. Go down there. Yeah, I will. You and, should. But or what Tijuana. I, what I do or find, Panama. It just sounds so crazy. I'm going to go to Tijuana and fix my back. I know. I, it but, sounds it sounds wrong, but I'm starting to believe that it's we, not. I think we have a fucked up system. Well, I think I really, really do. And the process to making that stuff legal, they're in the process of doing that. And Dr. Neil Reardon is deeply involved in this. He's the guy that I had on with Mel Gibson back in the day. And Mel talked about his own in, injuries that he got fixed with stem cells. And, and his dad, he was saying his dad was in a wheelchair. Yeah. And then, you know, like a few years later, his dad's walking around. He's Where fine. did Mel go? They went to Panama. And um, Dr. Reardon, he was like the first guy that I ever talked to about this stuff. And he's written many published papers and books on it. And very, very, very knowledgeable guy when it comes to this. And they're absolutely convinced that it's beneficial. And we should be using it everywhere. But so when, like, one of the things that, may, that I don't think anyone really understands that hasn't done it is like, okay, you're going to go get stem cell therapy in wherever, in Panama. What does that mean? Like you, Like you fly... From yeah. to Panama, you drive to some like established looking clinic, or is it like yes. in the back of a strip mall? No, 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 no. Like no, what? No. No, it's then, in a very. My, I sent my mom there twice. Really? Yeah. In Panama? Yeah. I sent my mom wow. to Panama. Well, you should lead with that. That's... Yeah. I should have told you that earlier. Yeah, lead with that. <laughs> yeah, my mom had really good success with it with her knee. But when you well, so uh, that you means go you there, really believe in it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a nice area. Where, you, where their their clinic is is very nice. It's in a beautiful office building. They take you there for three days. And you sleep like so. Is it you go to inpatient? a hotel? So you yeah. There's a hotel there. There's a hotel right next to it. And what the treatment is? What it's an injection. It's they... a series of injections in wherever the injury is, along with IV infusions. They do IV stem cells as well, which uh, helps your whole body, like whatever little weird aches and tears you have. My friend Gordon Ryan, who's the uh, best jiu-jitsu athlete of all time, he had an issue with his shoulder. So he got injections in his shoulder, and it fixed his neck. He had a neck problem for like a year. And just by the fact that it's in the area, it literally goes to wherever Finds the injuries the are. Wow, wow. And it fixed his neck. He's like, there's no other explanation. He's like, four weeks later, my neck was better. I always felt that the one of the greatest recoveries from an injury that I've ever witnessed. I'm interested to hear what yours is. I was at the um, fight when Silva cracked his leg. Yes. Um, Chris Weidman. Chris against yeah. Weidman. And I was there. I mm -hmm. was like up front. And I heard it and I heard him scream and I saw it, right? You were there. Yeah. Yeah, you, I was there. You were, 
How did he recover from that and fight again? Well, he did, but he didn't. Um, in my mind, I think Anderson Silva is the greatest middleweight of all time, right up there with Adesanya. I think Adesanya and and Anderson, and it's like different eras, but goddamn, when they were on top. I mean, Anderson was just in the matrix. He was so good. He was such an assassin in his prime. People forgot how great he was. Like top five of all time? Oh, yeah. Top three He's of all time? Mount I don't know. I don't like a Mount Rushmore because there's only okay. room for four heads. Yeah, I need there's a lot more because you have to have Hoist Gracie But maybe there. a Mount Rushmore. Close. He's one of the greatest of all time. Okay. Anderson how was, did he recover from that? But he didn't. He was never the but same he guy. Again. He did. But if you watch Anderson Silva pre-Chris Weidman, pre-leg break, and then post-leg break, it's a different athlete. He can't kick the same way with that leg anymore. I, I bet it doesn't move as well. I bet there's issues in terms of like load balance and like the way it feels. It's probably in pain all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of factors. You're probably very hesitant to throw that same kick again because you just had your neg leg snap in half and your leg was fucked up for a good solid year and a half after that and you had to have surgery and there's plates in there and rods and shit screws but did he win he he won uh, fights after he won that fights afterwards not right? as many no i mean what is anderson's record should pull up anderson's record and again this is not in disrespect of anderson because I, I i mean chris weidman just came back from a knee break too or a leg break as well rather and it was just last weekend two is that the worst injury that it's you've the ever seen in ufc silva yeah, well, I saw it with Weidman, the same exact injury. Right. He snapped his own leg, too, which is crazy that Anderson was involved. So look at look at that. Go scroll up. Okay, so Derek Brunson was his last win, and that was in 2017. Then he lost to Israel Adesanya, Jared Cannonier, and Uriah Hall. And then there's the loss of Michael Bisbee. So you go, like, from Chris Weidman. So the Nate, the Nick Diaz fight was kind of crazy. That was July 2013. Yeah, I think that was no contest because so you got two years or a year and a half from the Weidman leg break till he fights Nick Diaz again, and I think what is that no contest because like I think Silva tested positive for steroids. They both popped, I think. Yeah, still test. Silva tested positive for steroids, which makes sense because he's recovering from this horrific leg injury. You know, like when you when you there's no way you're going to do that clean and come back in a year and a half. Like you need help. You need like that's the, the legit reason for those kind of steroids. So if you go before that, though, you go before the the Weidman fight. Look at these fucking wins. Right. Wow. I mean, Stefan Bonner, Chael Sonnen, Yushin Okami, Vitor Belfort, Chael Sonnen, Damian Maya, Forrest Griffin, Talos Latis, Patrick Cote, James Irvin. It's just KO, 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 submission, KO. Rich Franklin, KO. Nate Marquardt, KO. Travis Luter, submission. Rich Franklin, KO. Mm. Chris Lieben, KO. Tony Franklin, KO. I mean, he's just dominating everyone. And then what? After And after, after the leg break, look, he won one fight. After the leg break, he's got the no contest, which was a, kind of a boring fight anyway. But... Then you got loss, loss, one win, a decision You're win right. over Derek Brunson. He never came loss, back. loss, loss. You're right. He was never the same again. He was never the same again. If you the the Anderson Silva that smoked Forrest Griffin, the Anderson Silva that destroyed Vitor Belfort, the Anderson Silva that just dominated that division, he was never really that guy again. The Anderson Silva that beat Dan Henderson, he was never that guy again. And I think that it's a very, 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 very difficult injury to come back from and be a hundred percent. What What are your thoughts on? Um, and I, I've talked to Dana about it 
like what what you know we talk you talk about the um i've I've done work uh with the n f l on brain injury and you know worked on changing the way football players tackle started uh, a heads up tackling program with uh, uh with kids try and get them to stop leading with their heads um for for brain injury and for paralysis i've seen both and worked in that space a bit and you know what 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 are your thoughts on on where what 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 we're going to see you know in the in the UFC with some of these fighters in five ten years like what you know I've, I work with a lot of boxers and and I've seen a lot of boxers have a rough time obviously as as they get as they get older and they get out of it um, what 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 do you think the long term uh, ramifications for fighters and their 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 brains are when they get out. It is absolutely never good to get hit in the head. Yeah. We all know that. To deny that is crazy. But this sport is you trying to hit someone in the head and them trying to hit you in the head. It's a fucking insane sport. It's you trying to strangle them. You trying to get them to not hit you. You try to take them down. You mm-hmm. try to submit them. But it's this, this part of the sport, a big part of the sport, is getting hit in the head. And some of these guys are getting kicked in the head. And if you've ever seen someone get kicked in the head, and I've seen a lot, um, it is a terrifying moment. You know, when a guy like Leon Edwards in the fifth round takes out Kamaru Usman, who's like one of the greatest of all time, with one kick, that's when you realize, like, oh, my God, like what a ferocious weapon a shin to your neck is. I mean, it's crazy when you watch people get hit by those things. There's no way that's good for you. That is definitely bad for you. The question is how bad... And how much have you, how much damage have you taken? What steps have you made in camp to mitigate the the the, the, la, the less da- to, to to mitigate the amount of damage that you take? And in camp too, right? You, like sparring. in camp, yes. And you have to make sure when you spar in camp that you are being very careful that you are you're not going to war that you're not getting. There's a lot of fights where guys have gotten big concussions before they fought, and then when they fought, the first punch that hits them, they go out. Even punches that don't even look like a devastating punch, but they're so damaged already going into the fight because they they train too hard. They got beat up and. And then there's there's this intangible thing where sometimes guys have an iron jaw. Literally, you can't knock them out, and then one day it goes, and when it goes, it's gone forever. When it goes, they get knocked out a bunch of times after that, and that's that seems to be indicative of something wrong something seriously wrong what that is i'm not a neurologist i'm not sure it's right. got to be damaged to your brain it's got to be damaged it's your body it's you you're not durable anymore for some reason and that's the tip of the iceberg the long-term effects are like severe cognitive decline it's uh pugilistica dementia yeah it's uh trauma-induced parkinson's that some boxers like freddie roach has yeah yeah it's a it's a reality of the sport. And you would hope that they have friends that can have that long, hard talk with them when it's over and say, this is not, a, it, there's, I'm not saying this because, you know, for any reason other than you, you literally have to be told this. You gotta get out now, or you're not gonna be normal in 10 years. Like I have run into old boxers um, guys that were younger than me, and I, I ran into Terry Norris once. Who was a, I was a giant fan of Terry Norris. He was so fucking good. 
and I ran into him at a fight, and he's slurring his words so bad. Yeah. And they did a whole uh, news piece on him where he talked about it, and his wife is helping him, and he's gotten better since then. But the struggle that you see, like, one of the fucking great welterweight champions ever, and then you see, like, how he's dealing with things now. Was he 154? I'm not sure. But you see how he's dealing with things now. It's like, God, was it worth it? I don't know, man. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, I, I saw you had um, Terrence Crawford on yeah. the other day, who I love so much. He's amazing. And he just seems so sharp. And his his defensive skills are, are great. Yeah. And, um, you know, but I, I watch it, and I'm like, man, I hope you know when to stop. Yeah, you know, he, it would be a tragedy to see a guy that sharp struggle yeah. mentally. And and I, I do think it's interesting. You know, I've worked in boxing for a while. I, I have a gym, and I manage some fighters, and... And uh, where is it? It's in Santa Monica, Churchill Boxing Club. Oh wow, that's yeah, awesome! We're, it's a it's a great gym. We were Wild Card West. We started as Wild Card West. Ah. Freddie let me use his name to get the gym going, um, and then we were Wild Card West forever. We've had Alvarez did four camps at our gym. Wow, Canelo did. Yeah, Canelo did. That's amazing. Canelo used to do all. Can, the gym was <laughs> actually we were about to close. Uh, I was about to close the gym down, and. Uh, I was I was here. I, I was in Albuquerque making Lone Survivor, and the gym was falling apart. And and it was just a it's a fucking headache to have a boxing gym. It's a real headache. I and, can imagine. Uh, and I had the all the toilet the pipes had blown the toilet pipes. So I had to fly back on a weekend and with my assistant mop it up. And my assistant was this you know she was a director's assistant and she's in there cleaning <laughs> shit in a in a boxing gym with me. And at one point she's like, I didn't sign up for this. I'm 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 a princess and I'm meant to be in it. She was delusional and delirious from cleaning up shit with me in a gym. And she was like muttering about how she was a princess and I'm oh my I'm God. like, okay, stop. We clean Cleaned it up, and I'm I'm there for one more day, and I'm gonna go back to New Mexico to film, and I'm in the gym, and I'm like, I gotta I gotta shut this down, and you know Gary Shandling was a partner of mine in the gym. Really? Yeah. Do, do you know Gary? Love. I boxing. met him once. He loved boxing. I did not know that. And I called him, and I'm like, Gary, I'm closing it down. It's it's too much of a headache. It's just nothing but a liability all the time, and I'm in the gym by myself, getting my last day there, I'm gonna go back to New Mexico, and it's clean, and I'm kind of looking at it, and I'd had it for like six years, and it was fun, and I, you know, I love boxing, and I'm like, yeah, I gotta shut it down. And in the mirror, I see this like little flash of red in the mirror, and I see someone's come in, <clears throat> and I turn, and this guy's standing there, he's like, are you Peter? I'm like, yes, he goes, Freddie Roach, told me to come down. I'm looking to train for my next camp. My name's Saul Everest. I'm like, yeah, I know who you are. It's fucking Canelo in my gym, right? Red hair. And he's like, very polite. And he's like, could I, could I train? Could I do my camp? He was fighting this kid named Lopez. He was getting ready for his camp for Lopez. This was before, you know, he'd really taken off, but he was emerging, right? And I'm like, yeah, you can train here. What do you? I'm about to close the gym down for good. And I show him around. He's like, I see the gym. I'm like, well, here's the gym. It's not much. It's a ring and our heavy bags, our speed bags. Here's our sauna. He looks around. He goes, okay, could I could I train here? I go, yeah. He goes out. There's two Suburbans out in the parking lot full of his camp, Eddie and Chepo, his trainers, five fighters. They're like, come on. And they all come running in, turn on the music, start eating and he came in and started doing his camps there 
and that got that got my gym going. Like once wow. she came, the gym, and we've had everyone do camps there, and I've had a front row seat to boxing, and man, like one of the many things that that I I look at is how hard it is for these guys to let go, you yeah. know. So you talk about Terry Norris staying a little bit too long. You know, Freddie Roach stayed in the ring probably a few too many fights. Ali certainly did, right? Yeah. And like watching these guys, and, and we have a lot of UFC guys have come in and you know worked on their their boxing in our gym, and seeing the struggles that they go through, to, you know, and you hope, yeah, like yet yeah, there's someone that's going to say, okay, enough, it's time. Yeah. But man, is it hard to let go of that? It's very hard to let go. And I think there's an also there's a bunch of factors at play. At play in that, one of them is their identity. That their identity is all wrapped up in them being a fighter. Yeah. It's it's very hard for people to let that go. Also, it's the only thing they've ever dedicated their time to. A lot of these guys don't have like serious other side jobs, or serious other side uh, p- professions. Some of them do. Some of the really smart ones, they kind of they they break off and they start little businesses and they do stuff so that they buy like um, Eric Anders guy's been on the podcast before he's invested in real estate he's bought a bunch of houses so he's good forever Wait, UFC or boxing UFC yeah so some guys are smart like that you know Conor McGregor obviously did he's very smart I mean Conor uh, started that whiskey company did the Floyd Mayweather fight he made a hundred million dollars and he starts this whiskey company he's worth like a half a billion right. like he doesn't have to do shit forever and he's only fighting if he fights again because he wants to. But most of them, when it's over, they're, they're confused. They don't know what to do. And the high of winning a fight is like nothing else in all sports. It's, there's no other, because you might lose. And if you lose, it's going to be more devastating than anything else in sports. If you lose a basketball game, I'm sure it sucks. I'm sure you feel terrible. But you can go home. You don't go to the fucking hospital with your face battered in and the whole world saw you get kicked in the face and there's memes of you getting flatlined and there's like animation of you getting knocked into orbit and you have to have all these trolls and haters talk shit about you on Twitter when you got knocked out in a world championship fight in front of the whole world. Yeah, and if you're you're on a basketball team or a football team or any other sport really, at least you know, guess what? I'm playing next Tuesday. Exactly. I'm pl- and, and I got a contract. Exactly. And I got a players union. Exactly. And I got a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. And I got a league. Like, like, yeah, like, it is a lone wolf sport. Fuck. It's for people that don't play well with others. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's for people that also value the camaraderie of other people that are similar to them. And, and like what gets me with boxing, which is like, you know, UFC... At least there's an organizing principle uniting it, right? Like there's the UFC, there's Dana, right? There's you as part of the face of the UFC. There's owners that have, you know, built a system, right? I think Frank Lorenzo did a really good job of giving birth to. But like boxing, it's like... Do you know how many weight classes there are in boxing today? Can you name them all? There's a lot. But I don't think that's a bad thing. Oh come on! I don't. And how about the how about how about multiple promoters and multiple? That's an issue. And multiple belts, like too many belts. Yeah. Too many promoters. So like you've got you've got four hundred and forty pound champions that are all promoted by different guys, and then four hundred and forty seven pound champions that are, and so there's no continuity of organization. To or yeah, false. that is absolutely true. 
Um, when we get to a level like a guy like Terrence Crawford, uh, who is the only man to ever be undisputed in two weight classes, which is pretty insane that no one else is. There's been ma like Manny Pacquiao. I love won, him so much. He's so good, man. He's such a great guy too. Yeah, I Manny Pacquiao won world titles in eight different weight classes. I mean, that's insane. How many world titles did Manny Pacquiao win? Let's pu let's pull that up. Look at his body but progression it, from when he started to yeah, when he ended. He got saucy. Something was going he on. He got man. saucy. <laughs> oh my god! Like, yeah. Like wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh my god. Twelve major yeah. wor world titles in eight different weight divisions. That is so insane. Th those accomplishments are so insane. But, but what were the weight? Div what did he start like one eighteen and went yeah. up to one forty seven? Maybe yeah, like something like that. Yeah, I think his first one was. So it's first one was flyweight. What is that? Is that one fit? What is it? One twenty six in, in, no, I think in the UFC? It's different because I think it's lighter than. One, I think it's like. What's bantamweight? One twenty. What is bantamweight? Well, well, lightweight is one thirty five. This is my point. And then There's too many weight Super classes. featherweight is one thirty. Super. So featherweight must be one twenty five, and then bantamweight must be one twenty. And flyweight is like one eighteen. Uh, yeah, there's weird numbers, right? Like welterweight is one forty seven. You don't for think some there's reason. too many weight classes? Here's the here's the deal. The thing about weight cutting, weight cutting is so bad for you. It's so bad. But when there's only a few weight classes, there's massive advantages. And one of the best ways to disincentivize weight cutting, which is as bad as anything else in sport, it might be as bad as the, the the strikes that you take. With some guys, like I've seen guys that look like they're on death's yeah, same door. Same, well, they are death's door. They are on they death's are. door. They yeah. are on death's door. And then 24 hours later, they have a cage fight, which is so nuts. And but the problem is, if you're a guy and you know you're five foot nine and you want to fight in the welterweight division, can you make 55? Because if you can make 55, dude, it would be better for you. Because if you make fifty five, like those guys will be your height. Like you're, you're, you're dealing you with. I mean, if you can come down yeah, to one. If you make one fifty five, then those guys will probably be your size. Because if you just walk around like one hundred and eighty pounds, you want to fight at one seventy. You're dealing with guys that are two hundred plus, and then they suck down to yeah. one seventy for a very brief amount of time. And then when you get in that octagon and they're fully hydrated. And you look at them, you're like, Jesus Christ, they're so much bigger than 170. Yeah, the rehydration is crazy. So, but my point is, if there's multiple weight classes in between that gap, you wouldn't have to do that. I think there should be, at the very minimum, a weight class every 10 pounds. And I don't think that's outrageous, and that's way less than boxing. But you would start at 125 like there is now, and 135, which already exists, 145 already exists, and then you go 55, which already exists, Are you 65, UFC yeah, or? 65, 75, 85, 95, 205, maybe 215, or just go right to 225, and then maybe even a 265. And then super heavyweight, which doesn't exist, which is really wild that the heavyweight champion of the UFC has to make weight. Like the heavyweight champion of the UFC has to be 265 pounds or less. Why? Because there's a weight class. But what if there's a super so heavyweight? Oh, there's a super heavyweight. But above. it's never been used. Has there ever been a 300 pound fighter? In the early days of the UFC, for sure. Yeah. Paul Varlins, I think, was 300 pounds. One of the really early ones when he fought Marco Huas. What was, um, what was Kerr? Was it Mark, Mark Kerr? Kerr? Oh, geez, he was big. 
He was gigantic. Marker. How good was he? Oh, he's phenomenal. He was phenomenal. He was an elite wrestler. I thought that would be a good. Who was film. on all the juicy juice? Yeah, I wanted. I looked at doing a film about him for a minute. There is one out. A documentary. Or yeah, the yeah. Smashing Machine. The Have you Smashing ever seen machine? it? No, but I meant I meant a scripted. Oh, I know. Scripted. Uh, yeah. Dwayne Johnson was interested in playing him for a minute. He's he's the oh, one that turned wild. me on to him. The, they call him the Smashing Machine. Yeah. is that the best? Fight name ever. Oh, so good. I saw him submit a guy with his chin in the guy's eye socket. Oh, fuck. It was an early, early, early UFC. He he mounted this guy, this guy Dan Bobish, and he stuck his chin in the guy's eye socket and ah. just fucking drove Is his that chin. Legal? It was then. Is it now? I don't know. No one's ever done it before. But also, no one's on the same amount of sauce yeah, as yeah, Kerr was. was. Kerr was, uh, he was. He looked like a superhero. Like, he didn't even look like a real person. Yeah. But super nice guy, by the way. A sweet guy. I think like, there was. It does a... not make sense when you talk to him, his personality, that he's such a murderer. I think he had the wrong woman in his life, as <laughs> I recall. That was a part of it. I can't believe that. All right? No, but nah, I, I, I think he's a pain guy yeah i think he got hooked on pain pills interesting it'd be an interesting film I, I, well it I would mean, be interesting because i think if have you seen the smashing machine i haven't i will okay, i'll watch it that's why you don't know he was addicted to pain pills yeah no, i knew that painkillers i knew that yeah and that's what happened so what happened to him is very related to your your series yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna look at it because um someone sent it to me Dwayne sent it to me he was obsessed with them it's a it's a very interesting story because at one point in time when they were following him they were following him because they thought they were following this unstoppable force in pride which was the uh rival organization to the ufc yeah that's him in his prime oh, dude what a stud huh? he was fucking people up look at him down there how much that's what he fought the UFC. that's me interviewing him what yeah that's 1997 oh shit yeah um, like, do you remember that interview? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Where was that? The, I, I'm not sure. I only did like a few of these back then. Isn't it I did wild it from, that like it... 97 to late into 1998, and then it became it wasn't cost effective. I was losing money, and I was like, I did it. it was fun. But, but wait, the, that the, was the a UFC. Was, was that UFC? That was UFC. Then? Yeah, I, I was the post fight interviewer for the UFC from 97 to 98, and then I quit. And then uh, I'm doing news radio, and then I wound up doing Fear Factor, and then uh, Dana White contacted me and was getting me tickets to the fights. I was like, oh, this is amazing. The fights are in Vegas now. Because uh, like, my friend Eddie and I, we'd always had this dream. Because we always loved the sport, but we were like, you know what would be amazing? If like these fucking billionaire dudes just fell in love with the sport and dumped a bunch of money into it. And that's exactly, exactly what, happened. what happened. It's exactly what happened. And uh, so when they said that they had actually done that, I was like, oh, that's fantastic. And so I went and I did some press for them. And, and then uh, I started asking Dana about fights. I was like, have you ever, do you know about this guy? Do you know about this guy that fights in Japan? Do you know about this and that? And he's like, and he goes, you want to do commentary? Did he know that you knew so much about it? I don't know. I don't know what he knew. You know, he knew eventually once we started talking. I was saying I, I train jiu-jitsu five days a week and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with the sport. But look oh. at me with all that hair. You look great. Oh. You still look great, Joe. Thank you very much. But you look great there, too. Different looked. chapters. Yeah. UFC 15. So. UFC 15. Oh, shit. 1997. But see, that, yeah. my, my theory, being you know a, a big boxing fan, um, we need a couple of billionaires to buy boxing. Mm. And like, 
It almost happened with zone. I don't know if you follow, like, this guy, Lem Belitnik, the... the um, I didn't follow Ru- it, no. A Russian oligarch basically gave Eddie Hearn a shitload of money and said, roll up boxing. And I always felt like one guy could have rolled up boxing because it's, mm. you know, it's controlled by... There's, there's um, Al Heyman, there's Bob Arum, and there's now zone Eddie Hearn. And if somebody... Golden boy. Huh? Golden Boy. Yeah, and Golden Boy's lurking around. And then there's some, some, but it's it's actually an asset that if you look at, you know, what it's all worth, it's it's conceivable that one billionaire could come in and for, I don't know what the number is, a couple of billion, buy out everyone, roll it up, and create one international boxing league, kind of like what UFC's done. It's hard, but if they did it, it's almost like boxing now. It's like if there were four different NFL f- football leagues. Right. So there wasn't one Super Lombardi trophy. Right. There wasn't one UFC belt. How many, like, people don't understand that. Like, right. oh, I'm a UFC, I'm a, 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 a WBL 140-pound cha- uh, right. champion. He's an IBF 140-pound. What? Right. It's too, like, if one person could roll it up. I've asked Dana several times to do it. To roll it up. How much would it cost? I, I mean, I would think you're pretty good at guessing missiles. I would say, <laughs> I would say to really roll it up and buy all, yeah, buy all, all the IBF, WBO, WA, buy out all WBC. the belts and get Eddie to because I put Eddie in charge of it. I think he's the smartest guy in boxing, Eddie Hearn, or the face of boxing at this point. Bob Arum, God love him. He's ninety. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, you got to get Eddie Hurt. I don't know what Al Heyman's experience is, what what he really. Um, De La Hoya, I don't. Eddie Hearn's like, to me, the guy. I like him, knows a lot about boxing. You you take Eddie and um, Dana, partner him up, have Ari broker the whole deal, right? And probably 1.2 billion buys the whole thing. And you then create a, a league, okay? Mm. Here's what I picked. It's a good idea. Okay, and then how about this? You get what's the biggest fight you could make in uh, UFC right now? The biggest fight, or a b- huge fight? Uh, the biggest. F- well, Francis Ngannou just left. That would be the biggest fight if you could get Francis Ngannou versus John Jones. John Jones or Ngannou, right? So you, yeah, you take, I think that would be the biggest. What's fight What's the in best? What's your best venue? Is it Vegas? Does it matter? Madison Vegas Square Garden? is kind of like Madison Square. You can't go wrong with Vegas or Madison okay, Square Garden. Okay, so let's go. Let's go to Madison Square Garden just because I'm from New York, right? Okay. So you have that fight, and let's think about the biggest fight in boxing right now. Is it? Uh, I don't know. Terrence Crawford's talking about fighting Canelo. Crawford Canelo. That would be the at, biggest at fight. At 100 and what? 40, 150? Uh, no. No. 150. No, he's going to go up to 68. Okay. Crawford. I was talking to him about him. I'm yeah, like, you're going to yeah, go up to 68. That's crazy. I, I have that. Let's say that could happen. I, it's hard for me to imagine that happening, right? From 147, what did he just fight yeah. at? 147? Mm-hmm. Okay. But Whatever. he said he met Canelo. He's like, he's kind of my height. Yeah, okay. And he's Canelo's, like, he goes, just I give me shorter. time. Yeah, he goes, just give me time to put on some weight. Okay. He goes, I wouldn't do it immediately. All right. He goes, but I'll have like six months to All really right. put. I, I don't know, man. I mean, look, Canelo's a monster. He's a monster. And his, his power will be the fact that the guy knocked out Kovalev at 175. All right. So his tell power me, is unstoppable. But, but. So let's say that fight mm-hmm. happens. You've got Canelo Crawford at whatever weight. Right. And you've got um, Jones. 
Nganu. Nganu, right? So you fill up the garden. I don't know who for goes first. Oh my God, you have both fights in one okay, night? Okay, the ring, the <laughs> ring is an octagon. You have the UFC fight. You're there, whole thing, fight ends. The premier fight. The ring lifts up, the octagon lifts up, flips over, drops a boxing ring down. Yes, drops a boxing ring down. And in one night, one league, Dana owns all of it. I pitched him this in Mexico. Late How drunk were you? Drunk. drunk. <laughs> I'm like, you don't understand. And he's kind of going for it. But but why not? Combat sports. Roll them up and, like, clean it up. Yeah. Because boxing is fucked up. Uh, well, maybe the Saudis. I mean, who has more money than them? Nobody. And they're also doing a lot of boxing events now. Like Tyson Fury versus Francis Ngannou. Isn't that in Saudi Arabia? Yes. Yeah, so they've had some major fights in Saudi Arabia, and they have a lot of money. They could do that. So if some maybe someone's listening right now, and they'll they'll go, you know what? Hey, I like it. Have let's, you seen, let's broker a deal. Have you seen the line in Saudi Arabia? Do you know what yes, that is? Yes. So I was just let's in, pull uh, it up, Jamie, because it's insane. I was just in Europe, and uh, I had lunch with this guy, Saudi guy, who's he's like, I'm like, what do you do? He's like, well, I'm in charge of all the insurance for the line. And I'm like, so let's explain the line. I'm to like, and then he started telling me, like, this, you think, like, we think we know what money is. This is where the money is. So, what this is, is some mega city that's many miles long that they're building that's all completely integrated, right? Yeah. It's in so, the it's like of one building. It's like a, no roads. Look at this. Read that. No roads, cars, or emissions. It will run on 100% renewable energy, and 95% of the land will be preserved for nature. People's health and well-being will be prioritized over transportation and infrastructure, unlike traditional cities. That might be amazing to visit, but fuck that. Dude, it's nine a, million people. It's in the middle. They're building this thing, and it's like, I don't know. Look two, how cool it looks. Oh, it's look insane. Pictures. Scroll down, Jamie, like those photos. Like, look at that. But you can see actual construction. They're building it now. Like I saw there's a whole city, you know, a couple of thousand workers living out there in these little uh, air-conditioned cubicles. This guy was showing me. This sort of brings look us. Look at this. It's amazing. That's insane. That's so Star Wars. They're building that, that shit. That is so insane looking. A revolution in civilization. Nine million. It might be dope to get a fucking spot there to visit. <laughs> Well, it's like like Dubai, right? Like when yeah. Dubai, remember when they were oh building God. the the look at that palm tree islands, and everyone look, thought it was crazy. Look at what it looks like inside. Yes, it. That's it's insane. Happening. Autonomous services. Look, you got drones that are fucking delivering you food, <laughs> bro. That might be sick. Look how look, high it is. How, look at it's it. higher than the Empire State Building. They're it's building 200 it miles now. wide. We, it's happening. Oh my God! It's mirror on. glass facade. Let me see the Black Mirror episode, bro. This, this literally is science fiction. Science fiction turned reality. Saudi Arabia is going off. But it's what we were talking about before. If you have endless money, like with the nuclear submarines and, the, you know, the battleships, if you have endless money, you can get a lot of cool shit yeah, done. Man. Yeah. But what's disturbing to you and I think to I as, as people that you like to think about everybody, like, what, what, what is this? where's this money coming from? Taxes? Why aren't we putting a, an enormous amount into new schools. Why aren't we putting an enormous amount into cleaning up communities and stopping crime? Why aren't we putting an enormous amount into healthcare? Because the companies that make the weapon systems 
are not going to let it happen. It's just this this ecosystem of money. I think it was Truman. It was either Truman or Roosevelt who said, "Be careful because we're going to have an economy that is forever interconnected to our military." It was Eisenhower so, and his, his departing speech. Eisenhower, right? Yeah. We have a we have an economy that is now linked to the industrial military industrial yeah. complex. So you can't separate them. You can't turn it off. But but I'm not even saying turn it off. Turn it I'm down. I'm saying if you have enough money to send how many billion dollars to Ukraine, where was that money when we needed infrastructure 100%. in cities? Where was that money when we needed better education and But where was a, it? Like, where was it? But it's, where it, was it's it? It's crazy that we prioritize certain things to the tune of just insane amounts of money. It's crazy. It's that no one's asking this question. Okay, this is not even a commentary on what whether or not we should be funding Ukraine. I'm just saying if you can do that, why haven't you looked at the state of emergency that exists in, in our many, many of the cities in oh, America? fuck yes. We're, but it's outrageous. And it's like... I, it should be a, a, a statement. It should be on the front of everybody's lips. It should. And like, like if you can put 20 nuclear missiles with warheads, guidance systems, propulsion systems on a billion-dollar submarine, 20 missiles, yeah. and put them on however many subs, one of which being detonated means we're done anyway, why can't we take two or three of those fucking missiles and do something. Well, here's the thing, according to what's going on in Ukraine, because we we don't have to, because they're doing both. They're doing both. They're funding Ukraine and they're building these weapon systems. I don't think it has to be an either or, or you even have to like have less of them. But it's just like, where did you guys get all this money? And why did you use it for stuff that we need? That's crazy. I mean, I understand that it's all com inflation. I understand. I understand it's caught with the problems that it causes, spending all this money and just printing all this money. I get it. But I'm saying, like, maybe there would be an overall net benefit for the country and for all the human beings involved. How many less people would we have that were addicted to opiates or they, they had a better situation in their life? And how much of that could be fixed if we invested money in it? How many lives could we save? How many people's lives could we enhance? How many trajectories of their life could we completely change for the better forever? I bet a fuckload. Yeah, I sure. bet a fuckload. For sure. And if they just invested in people the way they invest in other shit. But I just, thought about that. Like, like if you could actually see what it was like when we when we started like the the literal if you get into the weeds on how we armed ukraine right so you've got a bunch of 20 year old ukrainian whatever kids college students electricians plumbers whatever they were doing the trucks pull up and the equipment that gets presented to them night vision goggles drones drone technology you know kevlar bodysuits the weapon systems and the clothes and the value of that, and you think about we're just we're giving it. And okay, I understand why we're giving it, but think about the, those trucks rolling up and the amount of money being handed through equipment to young Ukrainian men. What comparable value or asset we're giving to young American men of the same age? It just doesn't happen. But we can do it. We can fly all the way over there and deliver it. I mean, the, the 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 amount of money we're putting into the hands of all these young soldier slash men from Ukraine compared to what that money could do in our cities, it's worth I think talking about. It is worth talking about. It's it's not 
some radical socialist idea that we should fix cities. It's no. in everybody's best interest. Also, just as the for the human race, it's in everyone's best interest. The world would be better off if there was less people who were losing. Yes. And what's the best way to stop that? Give them a start, a better start to their life. So what's the best way to do that? You have to improve upon community somehow. I'm not an expert in this, but I recognize like that's a giant issue. I don't know what you would do, but I would imagine there's got to be some strategies to improve things. Well, schools are good. Yeah. Like schools, parks, um, community centers, com- counseling, and, places like, where people can have healthy food and be safe. And, and teachers. And teach them things. Yeah. You know, have them have places where, you know, people could teach them, you know, whatever it is. Things outside of the how to play music, um, martial arts, teach. You know, the more people can learn, they have opportunities to do things, the better off everyone's going to be. The more safe they feel, the better off everyone's going to be. The more human beings that have a better shot at having an enjoyable life, the better off we'll all be. Go Joe. But Fuck the fact yes. that we don't think about it that yes. way, we just, everybody just goes about their business and thinks about themselves, but then complains about all yes. these problems that are happening in our in our cities, while you've you got a Ukraine flag in your fucking Twitter bio. That, <laughs> you know, it's wild. It's wild. Oh, God. It's weird. I mean, yeah. And, and, like, I just go back to the time in Pearl Harbor when I was getting toured around that sub, and I'm just trying to count how, I'm trying to do the math in my head. Yeah. How much does it? Yes, it's beautiful. It's Are you ex- going to do a piece on this? Are you going to do? Yeah. So I want to do. Uh, I want to. And so th- then it starts getting like you go down the rabbit hole of it, and you look up the ten biggest, uh, you know, arms companies, Amer- uh, weapons manufacturers, and you start looking up the CEO pay packages, and like you start getting a sense Ooh. of how like it gets pretty dark pretty fast. Ooh. Yeah. Look up, like you know, just Satan's real. <laughs> I mean, it's. Well, I mean, it all. This whole conversation started. When I'm like, well, okay, I learned this about big pharma because, okay, you know, I, I've heard you know, conspiracy theories on big pharma and be, be careful. But I, until I really went deep with Purdue, I never really like I, I understood it intellectually, but I never viscerally felt it. Like, right. oh shit, this is real. This isn't some like left wing conspiracy theory that there's greedy people out there manipulating the FDA. No, this is actually fucking real. And they got away with it. And they got away with it. And I'm not, I'm not like saying that like, I, like, every I have I support the fuck out of our our troops, and I have, and I I do. Like my father was a marine, the time I've spent working in that space, 100% yes support. However, when I see all the other people that are making money off of the backs of like at the end of the day. What I observed when I went to Iraq was not big technology out there and, you know, saving the day. These were 25-year-old men, like, kicking in doors, fighting a war that nobody cared about back home anyway because it was over there. So when I see, like, all this money and all this tech being thrown into systems that, like, I don't know, are we ever going to really use this shit? Because if we do... It's game over anyway. I see all these people making so much money. I'm like, this is this feels like we're in the same waters that we were swimming in when we were dealing with Purdue Pharma. Do yeah. You? So I, yeah, I would like to do something in this space. Well, listen, uh, painkillers fucking fantastic. Thanks, it's really dude. good. Like everything you do, 
you've done so many fucking great movies, man. Lone Survivor's incredible. You know, you're the shit. So appreciate you very much. Thank you for being here. And ladies and gentlemen, please watch it. It's on Netflix. It's fucking great. Fuck yeah. Thank you. All right. Bye.